Thank you. We're live, Mayor. Recording in progress. I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting of January the 17th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Our study session tonight is on Kirkland Teen Union Building KTUB operating models. We expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30. City Manager. Okay, thank Roll. you, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, members Roll. of the Council. Uh, so as you know, the Council has long had as a priority that we re- Oops. I forgot to do roll call. Okay, go ahead. Roll call. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Here. Councilmember Black. Here. Councilmember Curtis. Here. Councilmember Falcone. Here. Councilmember Pascal. Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Here. Mayor Sweet. Here. Thank you. Go ahead, City Manager. No Manor. problem at all. So it has been the council's priority to reopen the Kirkland Teen Union Building as a full t uh, teen service uh, center. And as you know, this, the department has put together an RFP process. We've had some excellent uh, nonprofits in Kirkland have responded. We want to talk to you today about the strongest proposal, the Boys and Girls Club proposal. And also the council allowed us to develop a city-operated proposal as an alternative. So tonight during the study session, I want to walk you through both alternatives and how they compete and uh, compare and then get council's feedback and direction as we go forward for the future of the Teen Union Building. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Lynn Zwagstra and her team. Lynn is the Director of Parks and Community Services. Thank you, City Manager. Lynn, it is so nice to see you all in person. All right. <laughs> it's nice to be here in person. Uh, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and City Council, uh, as the City Manager mentioned, we're here to talk to you this evening about uh, how to plan the operations of the Kirkland Teen Union Building. We have about 25 slides this evening and we expect it would take about 40 minutes. Um, we will progress through some of the information which is sequential, so we're hoping to take questions at the end. Um, the presentation will include a brief background and how we got here, and then uh, a brief overview of the Boys and Girls Club as an organization, and then also why the city developed a proposed alternative model. Um, and then we'll do a service level comparison that's gonna focus on three categories that you saw in the memo, that being scope, strengths, and financial sustainability. At the end, we will have a high level slide summary for you. You will see two different models for reopening and operating the Kirkland Teen Union Building. As mentioned, one is a nonprofit service provider. This is how KTUB has been operated for the last 20 years. And the other is a city-operated alternative. So we're hoping to hear your preferred direction so that we can begin a process of coordination and preparation. On that note, I'll hand it over to Sarah. <coughs> So city staff had planned to issue a new RFP in 2020 to re-examine the needs of uh, teens in Kirkland and how KTUB can best meet those needs. And this process was interrupted by COVID. Hey, sorry, you might want to pull your microphone a little closer. Thank you. Um, so instead, a private operator, Studio East, has been leasing KTUB for the last two years. And while they do wonderful work, KTUB has not been open as a teen center. And the city's vision for KTUB really is for it to operate as a teen center that provides comprehensive programs and services for teens. This vision is guided by the human services section of the comprehensive plan, specifically policies 3.2 to 3.7. These policies identify KTUB as a safe space for teens to learn, socialize, and do recreational activities. 
They discuss connecting youth with social services, enrichment classes, and employment opportunities. And this section of the comp plan also discusses promoting healthy lifestyles by preventing social isolation, increasing a sense of belonging for teens, and preventing risky behavior and supporting youth in need of services to address mental health and substance use. The comp plan informed the scope of services in the RFP that was issued in August 2022 to operate KTEB as a teen center. There were five proposals received, and after written evaluations, two proposals were identified um, and invited to proceed with presentations and interviews, the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA. The Boys and Girls Club was identified as the top external proposal through the RFP process. As Lynn mentioned, the city also developed an operating model if the city were to operate KTUB. Um, there are some benefits to this, which is why the city put forward its own model. As KTUB is a city-owned facility, operating it would give the city flexibility to quickly adapt to community needs, such as when a pandemic disrupts day-to-day -day activities. It would also allow the city to activate the facility for daytime use by adults and younger children, and it would allow the city to access and leverage other city resources. A city-operated KTEB would also provide greater control and provide more transparency into operations. So we have uh, two proposals for you to consider tonight. So before we jump into comparison of the two propo proposals, I want to offer a brief summary of the Boys and Girls Club and a quick overview of their existing proposal. Boys and Girls Club, or the club as I'll be referring to it, is a national organization that's provided services to youth for over 75 years. They have a long history with the city of Kirkland. They've received human services grant funding for several years, and they impact over 1,000 youth each year. The club's programs and services focus on six key areas that are reflected in the different programs that they discussed in their proposal. It touches on character and leadership, sports and recreation, education, arts and creativity, health and wellness, and workforce readiness. The organization does run a club-based model that does require membership with expertise that is focused in drop-in after-school programming. Two areas where the club has recently expanded their program offerings that were highlighted in their proposal are youth development and mental health support, most notably in their mental health initiative, which they discuss in depth in their proposal. In regards to a quick overview of their proposal, their model looks very similar to what's offered at the current site in Kirkland. A very significant focus on drop-in programs during after-school hours, and those are supplemented by Friday night social events, day-long summer camps, as well as having behavioral health staff on site. The city's operating model for KTUB, which was put forward by Parks and Community Services, leverages the expertise of the Recreation and Human Services divisions, including a deep understanding of what teens in Kirkland need to support their mental and physical, um, excuse me, social and mental health, physical as well though. Um, our recreation staff know how to run facilities such as the two community centers, and they also know how to run enriching recreation programs for all ages, and have spent the last year piloting successful teen recreation programs. Our human services staff have a deep understanding of the social services teens in Kirkland need today, and they maintain an important conduit between the city and teens in Kirkland via the Youth Council. Youth Council's Fall 2021 survey underscored the importance of mental health support, which then went on to inform the piloted recreation programs and led to historic funding for youth mental health support in the 2023-2024 Human Services Grant Cycle. 
The city's operating model is rooted in advancing the Parks and Community Services mission statement, which focuses on enhancing quality of life. The city's model looks very similar to the Boys and Girls Club proposal. We are proposing weekday drop-in programs, late night activities on Fridays and Saturdays, summer camps, and through human services partnerships, behavioral health staff on site, as well as an art therapy program and referrals for Latinx youth and their families to access navigational resources. So for the rest of the presentation, we're going to give you a side-by-side -side service level comparison between the Boys and Girls Club and the city's operating models. We're first going to look at the scope of each proposal, considering after-school drop-in activities and late-night events, supplemental programs, including summer camps, services, staffing levels, hours of operation, and anticipated numbers served. After school days during the week, uh, Boys and Girls Club would have a drop-in program with activities that would rotate um, and be available for youth. They would change every hour or so. These include games such as cards or foosball, homework help, uh, self-guided art projects, yoga, and dance. Youth would also be able to participate in a youth force program which focuses on life skills like financial literacy or college or career prep. Boys and Girls Club staff also discussed STEM programs, such as coding, and other programs driven by youth interest, such as podcasting, music lessons, and lyricism. They also discussed having time to connect with families at the end of the day during pickup. And on Friday nights, there would be teen events that would be open to non-club members to participate. The city's model uh, looks very similar for the drop-in programs. We would offer games such as ping pong, board games, or social games a study space for homework uh, and tutoring, as well as charging stations and laptops available for checkout and printer access. Art and music activities would be provided by For Tomorrow staff, which Jen will talk about in a bit. And we would also offer life skills workshops focusing on life after high school, such as learning how to make a personal budget or exploring college or career or service opportunities. Staff would also support um, mental health uh, by offering mindfulness or stress management workshops. And there would be a variety of activities to support physical health as well, such as yoga, sports, and dance. We also heard the importance from youth um, of just having a spot to hang out. So this would include a, a lounge or a social space for casual use. And then on Fridays and Saturdays, we would have late night teen events, uh, such as youth concerts or other performances, movie showings, game nights, tournaments, dances, pool parties, food, these would all be focused on nourishing social health. Supplemental programs, uh, these uh, may be specialized programs that happen during the drop-in time frame, or they may happen on evenings or on the weekends. For Boys and Girls Club, building character and leadership is very important to their mission, and they have clubs dedicated to leadership development, gaining skills and planning, decision-making, and contributing to the community and to the club, um, for example, via service projects. So these would all be available to youth. They would also offer sport and recreation programs focused on physical health and wellness, academic programs to support educational success, including their uh, homework help program and computer coding. They offer various supplemental art programs, such as photography, music making, and opportunities for youth to show their work in fine art exhibits. They offer health and wellness programs to help youth build healthy habits. 
They have a workforce readiness program to allow youth to explore their interests and develop skills that will help them succeed as adults. And they offer a rainbow club, which is their LGBTQ plus club. In the summertime, Boys and Girls Club plans to operate a summer camp at KTUB, which um, would have activities largely uh, matching their core program areas, character, leadership, academic success, and health and wellness. And it also aims at preventing summer learning loss through their summer brain game program. Uh, the city supplemental programs that are listed here are largely coming from the 23-24 teen program service package that council approved. Many of these are happening regardless of whether or not the city operates KTUB. Um, and if the city does operate KTUB, these programs would be based out of that facility. They would be given a home there and be fully integrated into operations at KTUB. Uh, so the outdoor um, recreation trips would continue. These were piloted in the summer. Uh, they include hiking, river floating, kayaking, winter activities, really focused on providing safe, welcoming, inclusive outdoor experiences, especially for youth who may not have access to outdoor recreation or who may not feel comfortable in outdoor recreation spaces. We would also offer field trips to a variety of events, tours, museums, etc. We would have uh, an outdoor yoga series, um, we will offer cooking classes, and we will have workshops on life after high school, focus on financial literacy and job skills and employment preparedness, such as navigating job applications, writing a resume, practicing interview skills, etc. We also plan to have a paid high school internship program where youth will gain job experience, training, and build skills while supporting recreation programs. Um, we do have some art workshops planned right now, and if we operate KTUB, these would expand to uh, include more, more art offerings. And then new with KTUB, we would have a sports league sampler to allow youth to socialize and try out different sports. We would offer first aid CPR certifications, and then also envision having a space and support for affinity clubs, which would be driven by youth interest. In the summertime, the city would offer leadership and adventure day camps for middle and high school age youth. These would include field trips and special guests, as well as a series of summer camps that would be focused on STEM activities, such as coding or video game development. So switching over to what some of the social services would look like between the two proposals, we'll start with Boys and Girls Club. The club's mental health initiative stemmed from staff feeling unprepared to be able to meet the evolving needs of behavioral health challenges that youth were experiencing on site at their current club. So through partnership with different mental health experts and partners in the community, the new initiative supports specialized training for staff, trauma-informed programming, and drop-in hours for behavioral health support so participants can access it during after-school hours. The club is proposing to host a specialist with expertise in serving youth during drop-in hours at KTUB. For youth that are in need of support during the day, the position would be available as well. So this could be for youth who maybe are experiencing homelessness or housing instability, youth enrolled in foster care, or not connected to education or any sort of formal community support. The club also has a workforce readiness program called Youth Force that they talk about in their proposal which focuses on career development that supports teens with resources to build the toolkit they need to successfully enter the workforce and build towards self-sufficiency. <coughs> in looking at the city's proposal, we are proposing to partner with two nonprofit organizations, 
The first is Youth Eastside Services, and the second is for tomorrow. Youth Eastside Services is a longstanding partner of the city and leading provider of mental health here on the east side for both children and youth. YES provided services at KTUB pre-pandemic, and when KTUB shut down temporarily in 2019, they worked with the city to re-offer programs that were specifically for black and African-American youth to support their behavioral health support at Juanita High School, and it's been a great success. One of the things that YES has talked about when bringing behavioral health services on site at KTUB is the importance of having drop-in services specifically for youth of color. They also talked about the increasing chronic need of services they're seeing for youth that are also dealing with substance use challenges. So what we're proposing as part of our proposal is to bring a clinician on site who's duly certified in both mental health therapy and substance use disorder to meet those increasing needs they're seeing in the schools and in the community. The clinician would be both bilingual and bicultural to prioritize youth of color, recognizing the disproportionate barriers that youth of color often find when seeking services here on the east side. The, the position would provide both drop-in services as well as long-term counseling support. So this looks like group sessions, individual and family counseling, referrals to adolescent psychiatric services, as well as case management. Again, YES has the track record and expertise to develop targeted outreach strategies to support black and African-American youth, Latinx youth, as well as youth that might be experiencing housing instability or homelessness. The other nonprofit partner is For Tomorrow, which is a Latinx and youth-focused organization that provides cultural support and coordination to community members that help them navigate systems, overcome barriers, and build self-sufficiency. They work closely with the city during the pandemic response, and we're really excited about the opportunity to partner with them in their wheelhouse, which is serving youth and potentially bringing them on site to provide services at KTUB. Their offerings would include art therapy services, so being able to use the recording studio, art classes, and workshops that are focused on art, music, and digital media. The goal is to use these art programs as a way of connecting Latinx youth and their families to the other services that For Tomorrow provides, which includes financial assistance, housing stability, and support for immigration status. There's also the potential to include mental health first aid training for youth and adults. One of the key opportunities with For Tomorrow is to be able to provide all services in both English and Spanish, as well as Portuguese, which would be a huge um, opportunity for different youth to be able to access the space in language. And looking at staffing for the Boys and Girls Club proposal, they're proposing a team director that would provide oversight of operations at the space. That director position would support two part-time youth development professional positions that would provide direct programming and coordinating on-site partners to support youth. They also would have mental wellness initiative staff on site during club hours. The city's proposal recommends a hybrid model that includes city and nonprofit partner staff. So the recreation staffing levels that you see here, we just want to do a quick comparison of how this tracks compared to what we see staffing wise at NKCC and PKCC. Currently, there's four FTEs at each of the community centers. And within this proposal, we're proposing three FTEs. So that includes the recreation supervisor, the program coordinator, and the program assistant. 
The supervisor would support the operations at KTUB. The program coordinator would help administer the teen programs as well as drop-in activities. And the program assistant would provide customer service and administrative support. There's also additional part-time staff that would support successful operations with programming. So this includes recreation attendants, recreation leads, and program instructors. I do want to note that the program coordinator position that's proposed here was approved for funding as part of the teen program service package. For our nonprofit um, staff, we are looking at working with both YES and For Tomorrow to bring new staff on site at KTUB. So the first is the mental health clinician that we talked about. This would continue to be a YES employee but would receive city funding so they could add them to their team. Similar to For Tomorrow, this would be expanded capacity so the city would help fund those part-time positions to support the drop-in art therapy programs. We also envision being able to work with volunteers to support some of the drop-in programs, most notably events and the tutoring opportunities available. In looking at the operating hours between the two proposals, Boys and Girls Club is currently proposing drop-in hours for 21 hours a week during the academic year and expanding to 45 hours per week during the summer. The proposed schedule aligns with similar drop-in teen center models and is similar to what KTEB has been able to offer historically through other operators. <coughs> In looking at the city's proposal, our model includes daytime activation of KTEB from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. six days a week. This includes drop-in hours, as you'll see on the slide, during both the academic year and the summer, but with additional daytime recreation programs and services for all ages, allowing the city to host year-round building hours averaging at about 55 hours a week. This allows the city to increase service offerings for all age groups, which meets the increased demand we're seeing from the community and residents and addresses capacity constraints at the current community centers. Daytime social services are also available that will be for different age groups in partnership with our nonprofit partners on site that allows folks to access appointments, trainings, and receive referrals for other services. Looking at impact and numbers served between the two proposals, for the club, you can see their average daily attendance and number of registered club members throughout the greater Seattle area. As part of the teen club at the current Kirkland site, there are 11 Kirkland teens and seven Sammamish teams that are actively participating. The club's vision is to really use the existing club site as a pipeline to KTUB which would expand their capacity to provide programming and a dedicated space for teens. If the club was able to use this space solely for teens, they would work with existing partnerships within their current membership, school district, and other community partners to concentrate recruitment efforts on bringing more teens into the space. When asked about this during the interview, club staff shared that teens have expressed direct feedback on the importance of having their own space. Many attend the club with their current younger family members and siblings and have talked about having a dedicated space and the needs that that would address. 
The city anticipates building off existing numbers served at the Kirkland site, which again is about 1,000 youth per year, to create a pipeline of younger members who can then age from the current site to their own space at KTEB once they're in that teen age range. Looking at the city estimates, these estimates are based on data collected through city programs, including the piloted recreation programs in 2022 and in working with our partners of YES and For Tomorrow. The annual estimates include number of teen recreation program registrations, number of drop-in visits, hours available, and behavioral health services utilization. These estimates reflect full activation of the space in partnership with programs and services hosted by city staff, YES, and For Tomorrow. Now we're gonna shift to the strengths within the two proposals and looking at each of the proposals ability to address the following areas, addressing community needs, DEIB and how that shows up in the proposal, how each of the proposals is looking at how they're incorporating youth voice, marketing and outreach strategies to youth participants and financial accessibility. One of the key strengths of the current club um, for Boys and Girls Club is they are an established club in Kirkland that includes programs specifically for teens. So they have deep knowledge around what current needs are of teens and what teens and families want in a dedicated teen center and space. The club also has a proven track record of responding to the changing needs of youth. We saw this through the addition of their mental health initiative as part of their service model. The club's vision to use their existing club in Kirkland as a feeder program to KTEB so that teens have their own dedicated space with programs and staff focused on their needs that's separate from younger participants is a huge plus and speaks to their ability to be responsive to direct youth feedback. They also demonstrated awareness of potential barriers participants could experience when trying to access services at KTEB. The club addressed transportation specifically in their proposal and their plan to provide paid transportation from Juanita High School and other schools in the area, which removes a potential barrier for youth when accessing the site and services at KTUB. During the pandemic, the city recognized the gaps in teen services and improved service levels for teens through investments in various bold strategies. There was a successful piloting of teen programs that took place in 2022. The historic investment in human services grant funding, which included over $400,000 in behavioral health services targeted for youth and council's approval of the 23-24 teen program service package. The knowledge gained and success of both investments would be incorporated into the city's operational model at KTUB meaning the programs and the staff and its partners would operate out of KTUB and supplement what the city is proposing, providing a dedicated space for teens with staff and programs reflective of youth recreation and human services, all housed under the same roof, which is really exciting. And looking at how each of the proposals applied a DEIB lens, we'll start with the Boys and Girls Club. The Boys and Girls Club specifically called out in their proposal that they're working to become an anti-racist organization and prioritize hiring staff reflective of the community served, 
recognizing the value and staff sharing perspective and experience with those who are accessing the space. They talked about some of the different ways that they want participants to feel like they're supported in the space. So they talked about celebration of different heritage months and being able to provide inclusive programming. So some of the specific areas that they called out was for heritage months, being able to support Autism Awareness Month, Women's History Month, Black and African American History Month, as well as Pride. Wanting to make sure that different folks with different experiences feel comfortable and can show up in the space as they are with their perspective and feel proud of that. They also talked about inclusive programming and being able to support access for youth with sensory needs and other disabilities. Again, wanting to make sure youth can come as they are and feel supported in the space by both staff and their peers. The last thing that they talked about was working to ensure that despite being a membership organization, that that membership cost is not a barrier to participation. So they discussed their robust, their robust scholarship program available and that they currently waive all fees for members that potentially are unstably housed or currently experiencing homelessness. In looking at the city's proposal, we looked to the adoption of the five-year DEIB roadmap, and that informed how we looked at operating a space like KTUB. The vision is to have KTUB be a space that can serve youth with diverse backgrounds, with a focus on underserved youth residents and their families. Some of the ways that we prioritize DEB that would be reflected at KTUB include prioritizing responsive and culturally appropriate recreation programs and services. We saw this in its success in 2022. We also prioritize funding to services that are provided by BIPOC agencies. We saw that again in the lens that we applied in recommending human services grant funding. At KTAB, how this plays out includes being able to offer bilingual and bicultural services and programs through a mental health clinician and recreation program offerings, being able to provide outreach strategies in language and in partnership with agencies that have the trust and expertise of their community, and being able to partner with organizations and staff that are reflective of the youth we want to feel comfortable accessing the space who may have not accessed city programs or services historically. In looking at how youth voice showed up at e in each of the proposals and their strategies for incorporating youth voice if they were able to access and operate the space, Boys and Girls Club talked about three strategies in how they incorporate youth into their programs and service offerings. The first is through their countywide teen advisory board that currently shapes policies and programs and advocacy projects throughout the county and at each of the specific sites. Currently, there is one Kirkland resident that sits on this advisory board, and if Boys and Girls Club was invited to operate KTUB, they would seek additional Kirkland residents to sit on that body. The other opportunity for participants to be involved in the success and operations of the club is through their Keystone Club, which helps and supports leadership and character development and provides youth um, direct the opportunity to provide direct feedback in the development of club agreements and surveys and how KTUB is working for participants. Finally, they talked about, and we saw this in their proposal, 
how they adapt programming and services based on youth participant voice, so most notably their mental health initiative. Looking at the city's plan, the city plans to continue engaging the Kirkland Youth Council to provide feedback on emerging needs, as well as provide input on programs and service offerings, ensuring that services available are appropriate and relevant to what teens want and need in Kirkland. The city is also planning to develop an advisory council that would have youth council member representatives, city staff, KTIB participants in both the rec programs and social service offerings, and partner agencies to align efforts on how we can continue to center youth voice in the operations of KTIB. For marketing and outreach, Boys and Girls Club plans to utilize word of mouth. Um, there are a robust alumni network and school connections, as well as outreach events that they plan to host, in addition to using their existing club as a pipeline to KTUB. To reach BIPOC youth, Boys and Girls Club plans to recruit one-on-one -on -one and face-to-face -to, -face to make personal connections with youth. They've also expressed an interest in collaborating with the city, for example, being included in the recreation guide, um, having involvement in community events such as Dia de los Muertos and Celebrate Kirkland, and partnering with the city to host workforce readiness um, events like potentially a job fair. They've also expressed interest in working with human services staff and nonprofit partners. They would also utilize traditional marketing outlets such as social media, email databases, and school advertising. And they're able to leverage their organization's dedicated marketing and fundraising departments. For the city's marketing and outreach side, the, the vision for the city is for KTEB to be for all youth, but with priority outreach to youth of color and youth who are not connected to school or existing community supports. Staff would collaborate with existing and plan to do this for our service, um, service package projects. Um, plan to collaborate with existing community contacts to reach youth where they're at, working with trusted partners at schools, nonprofit service providers, and various contacts the city has. Kirkland Youth Council and the new KTEB advisory group we are proposing will help develop marketing strategies. We found that youth council members have some great ideas to share for contributing to marketing KTEB. And we would employ traditional marketing uh, such as social media, online newsletters, print and digital media, et cetera, leveraging both the parks and community services communication channels as well as citywide communication channels. Looking at the financial accessibility for each model, uh, Boys and Girls Club plans to charge a $50 a year membership fee and a $75 a month transportation fee for youth who are interested in transportation from Juanita High School and area middle schools, and their summer camp uh, fees vary. They do have a very robust scholarship program and conveyed in their proposal they, they do not want fees to be a barrier. Um, and as Jen mentioned, they will also cover 100% of fees for youth experiencing housing instability or homelessness. The city's model does not include any fees for drop-in programs or teen nights. Some of our supplemental programs, particularly the ones that are structured um, more as our kind of traditional recreation programs will have fees, and some will be offered at low or no cost. We do have a scholarship program to help families with low income 
oops, I went too fast. Preview. Um, to help cover the cost of program fees, and that would be available for all of our teen programs. However, we recognize that not all teens have the support in navigating a scholarship application and collecting the required documents. Um, and we want to reduce that financial barrier as much as possible. So we are also planning to seek out sponsorships and donations and would like to implement sliding skill uh, fee structures or pay what you can fee models to improve financial accessibility. So we are to the last part of our service level comparison looking at financial sustainability next. So the Boys and Girls Club proposed budget is on the screen. Boys and Girls Club is requesting a $175,000 annual subsidy from the city to operate KTUB. As shown now in factoring in the city's budget for operating KTUB, which is $160,000 a year, Boys and Girls Club would need an additional $15,000 a year from the city to operate KTUB. Their budget shows diverse revenue sources coming from their membership fees, summer camp fees, sponsorships and grants, community support, and rental revenue. For expenses, they've budgeted for their staffing, food and snacks, programming and equipment, field trips and special events, transportation and fuel, utilities and maintenance, their mental wellness initiative staff, a reserve fund, and marketing. Boys and Girls Club staff have shared that they're working to expand their mental wellness initiative to be sustainably funded. Currently, this program is partially funded at their current Kirkland Club through Human Services grant dollars. Um, and I'll mention too, their proposal did not specifically identify any requests for one-time funding. Um, so we have that listed as unknown on here, but it's possible that they would need startup investment for furniture and equipment. For the city's um, proposed budget, staff developed three investment level options for operating KTUB. Shown here and recommended in the memo is the medium investment level. The city's proposed budget um, also leverages the new funding received for 2023-2024 for the teen program service package. So all of those dollars would supplement what is shown here. I first want to um, identify the extra numbers that are at the bottom of the city's table. Um, the city's proposal includes close to $122,000 for one-time expenses. These are for furniture, fixtures, and equipment. There's minimal furniture in KTUB right now, and what is there is old and in poor condition. Um, the condition of the lighting and the sound equipment is unknown, but it's over 20 years old, and some of it is likely in need of replacement. Staff have also considered the timing of the KTUB lease, and assuming the facility would only be open for a portion of 2023, We've adjusted our 2023 proposed budget to reflect a partial year at a net amount of nearly $177,000. The other numbers that are on here um, above in the table reflect a whole year of operation that would begin in 2024. The city's revenue sources include sponsorships, rental revenue, grants, donations, teen program fees, and program fees for other ages. And we're also listing the currently budgeted KTUB operating dollars here as offsetting dollars. <coughs> the city's biggest expense at KTUB would be for city staff. Um, we are also budgeting for general operating supplies and services, YES services, for tomorrow services, and then teen programs and our um, programs for other ages that would be based out of KTUB. 
the net investment in 2024 would be $384,655. There are two other investment level options that are outlined in the memo and in the city's operating model, one that's higher and one that's lower. Staff recommend the medium um, investment level to be considered first because it best reflects teens' needs at this point. Um, I'll note too that the operation of KTUB and the ongoing funding for the teen program service package are items that uh, the Parks Funding Exploratory Committee is considering for the ballot measure. So this is our last comparison slide. We kind of did a deep dive and we're gonna zoom out here a little bit, just looking at the cost, the hours of operation and the scope. So for the cost, I wanna um, emphasize the numbers look different because we're looking at the biennium here for 23-24. So Boys and Girls Club is looking at a $350,000 investment, um, pointing out too that the city has $160,000 that um, has historically gone towards paying for the operating uh, operation of KTUB. Um, Boys and Girls Club's operation hours would be 21 hours a week for drop-in activities during the school year and then 45 hours a week for their summer camp programs in the summertime. And the scope for the Boys and Girls Club is focused on the drop-in after school club, the behavioral health staff who will be on site, and summer camp. The new cost for the city's model, again looking at 23-24 combined, is $683,425. This includes those two one-time costs that were on the previous slide for the 2023 furniture, fixtures, and equipment, and the 2023 partial year of operation. The um, city model operating hours include 25 hours a week for drop-in hours during the school year, uh, 20 hours a week for drop-in hours during the summertime, and then year-round, the facility would be open about 55 hours a week for um, daytime activation and programming for all ages. The city's uh, scope includes the drop-in after-school program for teens, behavioral health staff on site, Latinx uh, youth and family services, teen recreation programs, summer camp, and adult and preschool recreation programs. So that concludes our service level comparison. We're asking council to consider these two different operating models and are seeking your direction on which model is more preferable as a service level for the community so that we can move forward with the selected model and prepare for KTUB's reopening as a teen center later this year. Is that it? <coughs> what a fabulous presentation. Councilmember Nixon has his hand up. Council. Oh, good. Councilmember Nixon, proceed. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. And thanks to the staff for uh, all the effort that went into this report and the level of detail. Um, uh, for me, uh, it's very hard to compare the proposals uh, because both the level of services are different and the level of funding are significantly different. And I'm comparing the proposed ongoing annual expenses of $844,000 a year in the city proposal to the $271,000 a year in the Boys and Girls Club proposal. And given that 
level of difference in the funding, it's it's not hard to see why there's a level of difference uh, in the services. So my question is, and I'm very curious about this, um, if Boys and Girls Club were asked to provide the same level of services the city is proposing, how would their price tag compare to the city's? Could they do it for less or would it cost more? And likewise, uh, if Boys and Girls Club were told that they could have the same level of funding that the city is proposing, how would the services be able to be compared? Um, again, would it be the same or uh, would they be able to provide possibly more services for the same amount of money that the city is proposing? Um, it's, it, we really need, I feel like, more of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, either the funding or equalizing the services. Thank you. Is there any opportunity to, to know that, or would that be a lot of work to figure out, or do they even offer those levels of service? We didn't ask them to to put forward that level of service in the RFP. That that was really what they were responding to. Um, but we could go back and ask if that would be possible. I don't know if that would be possible. Yeah. So maybe to elaborate on that. So the RFP basically said, "Here's the scope of services you could provide at KTUB, either yourself or in partnership with nonprofit agencies or other of other partners." So. Tell us what you'd like to do and tell us how much you think you would need support from the city. So in essence, we didn't limit what they could ask for, though we did note that the 160, 160,000 that we always provided was available. And so, but we haven't gone back and asked, you know, hey, if you were to try to match what the city just put out there, what would you do? But we did ask everybody, what do you want to do? And that was what the RFPs were responsive to. Great. Um, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you. Everyone, as the mayor said, it's nice to see you. Um, first thing I want to thank is everyone who submitted RFPs. It's a lot of work to put together an RFP, and uh, it's a lot of work for the committee to review them. So I think this process has been good, but I'm grateful for the effort that went into it. I personally feel like this is a wonderful opportunity to uh, for the city to take on the KTUB programming. It provides us flexibility. It provides us responsiveness. It lets us create synergy around the programs and the recreation programs we already have. It is a lot of money, but if there's a place in Kirkland where we should be spending our money, it's supporting our youth. And um, to Council Member Nixon's comment, which I uh, agree, it's, it's, we're not comparing apples to apples. One of the things that I think we should factor in is we are providing human services grants to these organizations, and my assumption would be that those grants would not be moving out. They would be staying in-house to support this. Um, one of the things that I really like about this is we've heard from our youth that mental health is a huge issue and something that, and we really are focusing on that. And what I appreciate about the, the city taking this on is how adaptive we can be. For example, I was listening to NPR today and it was talking about um, the increased incidence of um, uh, eating disorders and body dys dysmorphia because of social media. If we see that there's a need in our programming, we can add programming to address that, or if we have members that need that kind of programming. Um, I like this model because it, so based on that, it provides us flexibility in who we partner with and if we need to expand those partnerships based on need. 
It allows us to collaborate with other city resources. It, the youth input will help inform our parks programming and our special events. Um, and it will energize our youth council. And it also will um, involve the work of the Human Services Commission and the Parks Board. So I really like how this is just bringing everything together and creating a very collaborative model. Um, as I said before, I really, really appreciate the mental health um, and the youth counseling component of it. I love the addition of the affinity groups. I worked with another organization, and those were very strong and very successful. We need to walk before we run, but I'm going to put a placeholder in. Uh, we may want to look down the road and create adult affinity groups. In particular, I'm thinking of parents or parents and guardians of LGBTQ youth. Um, housing, you talked about housing insecurity. I'm also thinking about food insecurity, and we may want to look at um, do we create a program where we're sending food home with students who have issue, food issues at home. Um, in our uh, in our proposal, we haven't addressed, I know that we've budgeted for a van, but we, unless I overlooked it, there wasn't a lot of um, specificity around uh, transportation, how to get youth to the programs. I got ahead of myself. One of the things that I also really, really appreciate this is there's not a membership fee. Um, I think it's really important. Important, and I recognize that the proposals, particularly Boys and Girls Club, create a scholarship, but any sort of min membership fee is a barrier to entry and it's a barrier to belonging. So I like that we are, this is an open door, and this is part of our continu continued continuum care of, um, of our community. Um, I think that we, there's potential for many partners many grants and many fundraising opportunities. So I would suggest that you, those numbers are lower than what we're gonna actually see when we, um, when we go out to the public with this. Um, and, oh, and then um, we also, you know, down the road, there may be opportunities for legislative asks for this also. So I think I'm really, I'm really proud of this work. You guys did a great job and I'm very excited about this opportunity. And I realized that the other question was, um, I support the medium direction of the package. Thank you. Thank you. Council Member, or Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Jen and Sarah and Lynn and John, for putting this uh, effort together. It's clearly thoughtful on all the questions that you asked with the RFP, and you really have demonstrated the vision in developing a city model for operating KTUB. No doubt Parks and Community Services could provide a strong set of uh, services for our youth that is responsible, uh, responsive to our long-term goals and values. But as Councilmember Nixon noted, that higher level of service is provided with higher level costs to the city, a cost that goes outside the two-year budget that we just adopted last month. Um, that budget discussion had a number of important work that was um, funded that we important work that we'd like to continue on an ongoing basis but was funded through one-time funds and this would add several hundred thousand dollars of work in that same category um sarah mentioned the parks funding exploratory committee is is looking at this as one of the the options i'm wondering what's our time frame on decision making here is it possible with the rfp to make this decision 
concurrent with deciding what's in the ballot measure or even waiting for the results of a ballot measure if we decide to put one on the ballot? Uh, thank you for the question. These two items are kind of interrelated. We debuted the list of ballot measure elements uh, last week at PPEC, Thursday night. Uh, so we showed them, I believe it was 22 flashcards with all these different elements on them. And one of them was uh, teen programming. There were two options presented, one being an expansion of general teen programs and services, and the second one being the potential to add KTUB um, to the package. And so uh, we let PFEC know that we weren't really sure which option they would be considering. Um, so what, what we could do is go back to PFEC and say consider both, you know, and provide a recommendation on which, if any, you would recommend. Um, so PFEC will be having these discussions throughout February, and the recommendation is expected to come to City Council in March. Okay. And then secondly, with the uh, proposal from the Boys and Girls Club, it's a five-year renewable contract. Given what we've asked in the, RS, uh, in the RFP, do we have the flexibility to negotiate on terms on that? Because I'm wondering if we can... You know, as, as we think of this, if we do make a decision that we want to move this in-house, I'm not sure that given PFAC and budget and other things, we're ready to have make this decision out of cycle. And I'm wondering, could this be done as a two- or three-year contract with Boys and Girls Club that would allow us to make this decision as part of our standard budget process? Yes, we have full ability to negotiate the terms of the contract as well as the, the start date. Um, one thing to mention, though, is there is a substantial investment of time and resources required to bring KTUB up to operations. And so uh, I can't speak for the Boys and Girls Club, but I would imagine that what they would do is a cost-benefit analysis and see if um, that would be feasible for them to engage in that level of investment for just a two- to three-year time period. And um, we, you asked another question earlier. Um, we do have the ability to come back to them, say, in three years and ask if they would still be interested if we don't pursue um, awarding a bid right now. So as um, our finance department and our legal department advise, there is no statutory requirement to do an RFP process to lease a facility. Um, so if we chose not to do one in three years, we don't have to do one. Or if we chose to not make to make the decision following the ballot measure results, um, if this council chose to do the ballot measure, we could make that decision at any time. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So I'm going to echo some of the comments from my uh, fellow council members just concerning the effort um, of everyone involved. Um, uh, the folks who responded to the RFP, um, community organizations, but also just the amazing work the staff did. Um, I came into this uh, when I, you know, uh, first cracked open the first page of the uh, memo. I really thought my thinking was going to be that it made sense for this for for our model for KTEB to be the model we had used in the past, which was a third party organization um, at a price tag of one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year. 
Um, but it was really the, um, the vision that was uh, presented by the staff that uh, really impressed me. Um, and there's, I won't respond, I won't echo everything that my, uh, some of my fellow council members have said, but, but it is the, um, uh, it is the, the, the fuller programming of the space. It is the flexibility and the ability to pivot. Um, it is the, um, the absence of, of upfront costs, although I wanna poke around at upfront costs here in a moment. Um, I will have a question. Uh, um, the uh, the potential for some greater stability, uh, the city of Kirkland operating this space. Um, I will say that, uh, so anyway, just thank you for putting together an amazing proposal and thank you for the organizations that submitted. Um, I am, I feel a little bit like I walked on the on the car lot and I said I just want the base model and then the salesman showed me the tricked out model and now I'm having a hard time um, not choosing the tricked out model because it's just so amazing. Um, but I am concerned about the additional um, costs associated with the city run model. Um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but um, I am, that is something that I always uh, pay close attention to is um, our ability to afford, we are essentially on a fixed budget, so there are opportunity costs associated with, um, uh, additional costs associated with running the facility ourselves, but I do see uh, some tremendous um, uh, potential um, for us operating the facility ourselves. Um, I promised to have a question, and uh, that was really, I want to kind of um, ask some details around uh, what a drop-in experience would be like for a teen if, if we open this uh, facility tomorrow under the city model versus the Boys and Girls Club open this facility tomorrow. What would the drop-in experience be for a teen? Um, and I, what I really, the, 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 the use case I'm, I, I'm thinking about is, or rather, let me put it this way, the vision I have is a space where, where teen, teens can come, um, a friend of a friend who hasn't been to the facility before can drop in one, one Tuesday afternoon, and uh, there in the back, um, guitar lessons are being taught. And a teen who'd never thought about taking guitar lessons is watching what's what's happening in the back with the guitar lessons and think, you know what, I might come back next Tuesday and try out guitar lessons. I've never thought about guitar lessons before, uh, but that looked really fascinating. And it's the, really the idea that I've talked with the Parks Department before and my colleagues about is just the, the power of teens being able to sample different activities at a very low cost um, and what that means for their own um, uh, emotional and, um, and, and mental health. Um, and so that's why this, this idea of a low cost or low barriers to entry is so important to me. And I really, that's why I want to ask these, this detailed question. So under a, a boys and girls club model, what would that experience be like for that friend of a friend who shows up for the very first time on a Tuesday and drops in? Would they need to br bring a $50 check? Is our understanding um, from the boys and girls club proposal that that teen would need to bring a $50 check that first drop in in order to um, and enjoy the space. I understand under our model, the team would just drop in. Uh, 
So I, I don't, you know, if, if a teen arrives for the very first time and they are not registered, they're not a current club member, that's not a specific question that we ask the Boys and Girls Club staff. So I, I don't know what their approach would be for someone who is showing up for the very first time. But I think the youth's experience honestly would be very similar between both the Boys and Girls Club um, drop-in model and the city's drop-in model, where the youth would be welcome. They'd have a staff member who would chat with them and learn about why they're there and get to know them a little bit help introduce them to activities that they might be interested in, like the guitar lessons, talk with them about how they can build a connection and return so that they can continue to make those social connections, get that sampler of activities so they can experiment and try out different things that they enjoy. So I really feel like the youth experience will be very similar. There, there would need to be some um, you know, registration processes that we'd have to figure out that we haven't fully developed for the city's model. Um, but really looking at low barriers to entry so that kids do feel welcome coming into the space. I don't know if others want to add anything to that. I'll just add based on my experience with the current site that they would not necessarily turn them away. What they would probably do to Sarah's point is engage level of interest, different programs they want to be connected to, and probably provide the materials for the scholarship application and information if they do have a parent or guardian to be able to share with them when they go home to allow them to gain that membership or secure a scholarship in order to access services. Okay, thank you. And so just as a follow-up, now looking at that second visit, the next I want to come back next Tuesday and I want to enjoy the guitar lessons. And I'm not talking just there's there's the financial barrier, but there's also just the administrative paperwork barrier for a teen who wants to come back next Tuesday and try out uh, guitar lessons. Um, are we Would we be... Are there significant differences between the two models as to what that teen's experience would like be from Tuesday number one to Tuesday number two as far as what they would be asked to do in order to be able to show up next Tuesday and enjoy the possibility of that those guitar lessons for the first time? We didn't quite get into that level of detail with the re you know registration. I, I haven't personally looked at the Boys and Girls Club scholarship application, so I, I don't know what kind of details they're asking for. Um, in the city scholarship program for recreation programs, we ask families to provide you know an, a statement that verifies their income, and there's an application to fill out. And we know that that's that can be a barrier for youth who are on their own and are registering for their own recreation program. So that's particularly why we want to reduce those financial barriers as much as possible, look at those alternate um, fee structures, a sliding scale or a pay what you can kind of fee model for those recreation programs, recognizing that not all youth have support navigating those. Um, okay, all right, thank you. Thank you, uh, Council, Council Member Falcone. Thank you, and Madam Mayor. Just let me inject. If we can get out of here early enough to do the collective bargaining session, we will. So. Great. No pressure on me to be quick then, Madam <laughs> Mayor. <laughs> Thank you for that. And uh, great feedback from my fellow council members and um, Councilmember Black. Great question there. I um, particularly appreciated that. Um, well, thanks again. I'm just going to say it again, but thank you to um, to Sarah, uh, Jen, and Lynn, and John, and the whole team, and everyone who not only um, responded to the RFP, but I'll just add on as well to all the community members who gave input, members of the various um, boards and advisory boards and commissions who gave input. Um, it's so valuable, and I really appreciated reading those summaries in the packet, so thank you for that. Um, well, I think there's 
These are two great options. They're both great options. Um, if we went with the Boys and Girls Club, I would want us to explore some changes similar to you know, what Councilmember Nixon said, uh, provide the opportunity um, to see if they'd want to um, add additional services and also um, the fees, you know, similar to the comments of my fellow council members, um, having fees as a barrier is, um, is worrisome to me, so I would really want to, you know, perhaps look at if the city could perhaps bridge that gap um, in the budget if we were to go that route. Um, similarly, you know, if we were to go with this, the city-operated route, there are some questions I would have around, you know, just wanting more specific information on the revenue sources and our confidence level with getting sponsorships and, um, and uh, the daytime programming fees and those types of things, like how confident we are that that could be robust enough to help cover what's budgeted for here. So um, as we continue, if we, if we go along that path and um, th that conversation, I'd want more information on that just to have a, you know, a good confidence level that we could in fact get that revenue. Um, I appreciate just the thorough process, you know, that we went through. I feel confident in um, in staff's recommendations here. I'm just taking a step back, really, really excited that we're moving towards reopening KTUB. Like, whatever direction we go, I'm super excited. This is a huge need in the community. We know it's a huge need. We know something. It was a service that was well utilized in the past, um, and we've heard from community members that they just cannot wait for us to reopen this this space and these services. So, thank you for all of your hard work in helping make that happen. I can't wait until we can do that. So I appreciate some of the other comments here about you know waiting for certain things to fall into place, but I also don't want that to be a barrier to us actually moving forward and delaying reopening of KTUB. Um, so my thoughts would be let's, yes, let's get more information perhaps with some of the questions that were asked, but um, I don't want that to stall the reopening of KTUB. We know that there's a need. This is something we've heard from the community. I remember, you know, my first um, year on the Human Services Commission hearing from the Kirkland Youth Council and their, you know, the theme of the issue they were addressing that year was teen mental health. And we just heard so much um, in the work that they were doing. And so we've known for quite some time that, you know, this is not a new issue. We know that um, uh, the focus on youth mental health is just um, ever increasing, the need is ever increasing, as it is in the larger community as a whole as well. So I really, really, really appreciate the focus on behavioral health um, in both of the proposals. Um, you know, I, I, I <coughs> my preference would be similar to some of my colleagues, I am really, really excited about the opportunities for a city-run program here. I think there's just so much, and so much of it was outlined in the memo, so I don't need to repeat all of it, but I really appreciate having um, no fees, the fees not being a barrier, the flexibility as needs change, that we can pivot kind of on a dime, um, which is a lot harder when you have a contract, the robust behavioral health services. I really appreciate our um, maintaining our focus on equity and moving for even further in that direction. Having the night events on Friday and Saturday, we know that our indoor recreation space in this climate is something that's really precious and is decreasing as, as real estate prices have just gone up and up over the years. And so having indoor recreation, safe indoor recreation for, um, for youth is huge. And so I really appreciate um, the city's focus on having both Friday and Saturday nights um, events for our youth. So I agree with the, um, the medium service level as a starting point that I'd like to see us pursue um, for, for the city-run program, but kind of with a little caveat that um, similar to Councilmember Curtis's comment, transportation was like top of my mind. The fees and the transportation were kind of two of the big um, things that I saw as differences between the two. And so I would like to see um, 
options for how we can proceed with the medium level of funding and the van option from the um, enhanced option. So thank you again. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Yep, just echoing all, all the hard work and really grateful for the thoughtful efforts by everyone. So really pleased to kind of see that we're finally at a decision point. Um, it, was it was over three years ago that uh, I know I went around with staff to other teen centers in, in Redmond and, and Bellevue and took a tour to see what each community offered and how they ran their facility and what, what services uh, they were able to provide. And you know, every, every community does something a little bit different is kind of the takeaway, right? And to, to fit their community the best. This is such an important asset. And I think back about how, you know, 20 or some years ago when this facility was built, how, you know, society and culture and stuff, we were kind of in a different state. You know, teens, teens didn't have social media. They didn't have a lot of the different things that are going on today. And so we really need to kind of take advantage of this time. And, and I, I feel strongly like my colleagues that we need to offer as, as, as much as we can here um, uh, for, our, for our youth. Um, it, it, and it really begs the question now, is the third party model really the model that should continue forward? Um, I really do see a lot of benefits from the city, obviously the enhanced service levels, but I look beyond that in that how we can build off existing programs that we're offering. How, you know, when you think of teens, teens attract teens to uh, programs and, and uh, offerings and, and events and social activities. And so we have just a great conduit, I think, with our community that we can really build off and grow those that um, that experience and, and those numbers. Um, and then the other thing I think about is Boys and Girls Club, my understanding operated KTUB many years ago before YMCA, then YMCA came on board. I think it's only natural to give the city an opportunity now. So um, that being said, uh, I'm not gonna repeat all the reasons I, I feel this way, uh, like my colleagues have mentioned, but I, I support moving forward with the city proposal, I just ask for some additional information as, as we continue going down this pathway. One, I'd like a little bit more clarification around sponsorship, sponsorships and donations and fundraising. I think you know, that is one of the benefits with a third party is that they, they can do that and perhaps they have um, um, you know, the mechanisms to, to do that better. What, how could we? do that you know do we have partners that we we can partner with like the parks and community foundation to maybe increase the revenue there i i don't know how would that work i'd just be interested in kind of a strategy um and then just a little bit more information on kind of the proposed budget you know my experience with the city is that we're all we're very conservative so how conservative are our numbers you know um i would imagine that they probably are um, and so there is some probably cost savings that, that could be occur over, over time. And then as a council member, um, Curtis had mentioned, you know, how does this change kind of human services grants going forward where um, I know we were dedicating a lot of money to a teen mental health and things like that. I'm, you know, that, that all has to be in play when you're looking at trying to fill a $400,000 um, enhanced service level each, each year. So I just want to have kind of a better strategy in place, kind of looking beyond 2024, because I want to make sure this is sustainable. 
uh, I don't want to vote for something and then and then in 2020 and 2024 figure out what we're doing so uh, thanks thanks again thank you okay I'm gonna wrap it up really quick you're not gonna hear anything from me except thank you um, for this a beautiful body of work I am so proud of you for putting this together it makes me feel like the kids have sort of regained our interest um, so bringing it in-house to me is very important I want um, I want to be a teen in Kirkland if we have stuff like this going on so um, I'm there medium plus the transportation is an issue we do have community vans there are other things for us to look at um, but go forward I think you've gotten enough feedback from everybody else uh, to be able to put stuff together. Anything else from you, city manager? I don't think so. We'll come back and respond to what we heard and some additional information on financial sustainability and some other options. But okay, so great. Stay tuned. We're a little bit early to get out of here, but because we have concluded early, we're going to try and use that time to go into a closed session to discuss collective bargaining. For members of the public participating by Zoom, this meeting will go offline during our closed session. The regular meeting will reconvene at 7.30. Thank you. Recording stop. We are back in session following a study session on the Kirkland Teen Union Building KTUB operating models and a closed session to discuss collective bargaining. We are at honors and proclamations. We are going to start with the National Day of Racial Hearing Proclamation. Deputy Mayor Arnold will help me with this, and I believe City Manager, I'll give it to okay, you. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, we are declaring January 17th as a day of racial healing in Kirkland. The National Day of Racial Healing was established on January 17th in 2017 by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and observed every year on the Tuesday following Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a time for communities to come together and take collaborative action on how to heal from the impacts of racism. And here to receive the proclamation is Kalika Curry of Pono Pursuit, LLC. She's a past Kirkland resident and champion, and she is also a leadership member of the Right to Breathe Committee. We're very happy to have her here tonight. A proclamation of the City of Kirkland proclaiming January 17th, 2023 as Day of Racial Healing in Kirkland. Whereas the W.K. Kellogg Foundation supports thriving children, working families, and equitable communities and helped create the first National Day of Racial Healing in 2017 to further its work and create collective change, and whereas acknowledgement of past injustices helped bring people together around a shared understanding of the ongoing issue of structural racism in order to heal as a community. And though, although not a comprehensive list, the city has identified the following examples that highlight the history of interpersonal, institutional, and structural racism in the Pacific Northwest. And whereas the Southern Salish Sea region lies on the unceded and ancestral land of the Coast Salish peoples, the Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Puyallup, Skykomish, Snoqualmie, Snohomish, Suquamish, and Tulalip tribes, and other tribes of the Puget Sound Salish people. And present-day city of Kirkland is on the traditional heartland of the lake people and the river people who are not alone in being the target of policies and practices by the United States government, its representatives, and the majority of local early settlers to be systematically dispossessed of ancestral homes to make way for white settlers. And whereas 
Structural and institutional anti-black racism was present in the Pacific Northwest, then part of the Oregon Territory, through the adoption of black exclusion laws in the mid-1800s that prohibited black people from living in the territory for more than three years, which bore the consequence of 39 lashes every six months until they left. And whereas approximately 7,390 Americans of Japanese descent from Western Washington and Alaska were forcibly relocated and incarcerated in concentration camps during World War II, an action that was admitted by the US government in 1988 to have been based on race prejudice, war hysteria, and failure of political leadership. And whereas at least three Kirkland area housing subdivisions are known to have been racially restricted through property covenant, through property deed provisions or restrictive covenants put in place between 1930 and 1947, which restricted the right of ownership, occupancy, conveyance, and or rental for only those of the Caucasian race. And whereas reminders of racism and inequality persists in our society with the tragic killing of George Floyd by a police officer on May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the death of many other black people and people of color. And whereas the city of Kirkland has passed resolution R5434 to ensure the safety and respect of black people and adopted resolution R5240 declaring Kirkland a safe, inclusive, and welcoming community for all people. And as a result of both resolutions has taken many budgetary and policy actions to make progress toward the goal, recognizing there is still much more to be done to achieve equality, justice, and inclusion for everyone, to create a community that is committed to examining and dismantling interpersonal, institutional, and structural racism in Kirkland. And whereas the city understands and recognizes that there is a racial divide in our country that we all must work in bridging in order to heal the wounds created by historical and current racial, ethnic, and religious bias. And whereas every person has the capability to make changes within themselves through reflection, learning, and conversations about race that can collectively have a profound effect on our entire society, and whereas dedicating ourselves to the principles of truth, racial healing, and transformation could help bring about the necessary shifts in thinking and behavior that will create a community and country where racial biases and structural racism will no longer plague our society. And whereas racial healing is a vital and crucial commitment to the health, safety, and economic well-being of all people, and whereas in our community, to support this healing, Eastside for All, a community partner, is hosting a free virtual event called Models and Tools for Racial Healing, Justice, and Equity. Now, therefore, Penny Sweet, on behalf of the City Council, joins the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and other communities across the nation and proclaims Tuesday following Martin Luther King Day, Junior Day, as the day of racial healing in Kirkland and calls upon the people of Kirkland, Washington to promote racial healing and transformation in ways best suited for them individually as a means together to ensure a more just and equitable world. So on the 17th day of January 
2023 Mary Penny Suite. Thank you, Kalika. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm just gonna invite everybody to take a breath with me because I don't know about you, but I feel a lot of emotion just hearing all of that. So just a moment. I'm the third generation in my family to live in Kirkland. And looking in this room, that seems pretty surprising because there's not a lot of black people here, right? For those of us who are here virtually. I call upon all of you to take this really seriously. And it's not just about a day, it's about a lifestyle. The relationship we have with ourselves and the relationship we have with one another is a key resource in all change and all movements. So whether you're here for housing or racial equity or mental health or your freedom, whatever the case may be, the relationship with yourself and the relationship with each other as a community is the key resource in all movements. So please make racial healing a part of your lifestyle not just today. It's an honor to receive this. Thank you. Okay, before we proceed, and thank you for reminding me, Councilmember Nixon. Councilmember Nixon has a point of personal privilege that he would like to take at this time. Well, thank you very much, Madam Mayor. Uh, hello from Scotland. Uh, <laughs> as chair of your Tourism Development Committee, I'm here overlooking beautiful Loch Ness, <laughs> hoping for a meeting with Nessie to invite her to relocate to Lake Washington to be Kirkland's newest tourist attraction. Um, so far, I haven't secured an appointment, but I'll let you know when I do. Um, uh, I'm told that the Loch Ness Monster vocalizations sound a lot like snoring when heard over Zoom. So I apologize in advance if I'm not quick enough to mute my audio when monster sounds occur in the background. Um, but seriously, though, Irene and I are here in Glasgow visiting our daughter, who is in veterinary school here. Uh, but this is an important council meeting I didn't want to miss. And I'm happy to join remotely by Zoom, even with the eight-hour time difference. Um, I also want to mention that the hotel Wi-Fi is flaky, as seems to be the case with all hotel Wi-Fis. So if I get dropped, I will rejo rejoin as quickly as possible. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Nixon. Okay, that takes us to communications uh, and items from the audience. This is the time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing. We do have a public hearing this evening. It is item 6A on permanent supportive housing at the former La Quinta Inn. On all other matters, please limit your remarks to three minutes and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they signed up. 
Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting, and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker, or that you express your disagreement <clears throat> with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are also not allowed in council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their content. City Clerk will call the first three speakers. The first three speakers are Joanne Mansfield, Ariel Bluestein, and Kiani Robinson. Welcome, Ms. Mansfield. Is this working? Good evening, Mayor Sweet, <laughs> members of the council, and staff members. My name is Joanne Mansfield, and I live on Northeast 115th Place in the Hermosa Vista neighborhood uh, near Finn Hill, on Finn Hill. I have lived in this neighborhood for 45 years with my family. First, uh, we want you to know that the Hermosa Vista neighborhood appreciates this opportunity to support Kirkland in its efforts to improve the dangerous intersection at Northeast 112th and 80th Avenue Northeast. But tonight, three of us would like to speak to you, including myself, about concerns that we and many in our community of Hermosa Vista share. The first being the potential loss of our neighborhood sign, as well as unaddressed safety concerns. Our community of Hermosa Vista is slightly visible from Juanita Drive, but our landmark sign is very visible and is our neighborhood identity as well as our ge geographic location. This potential loss was not addressed in the Juanita Drive project update to alter the intersection. Recently, the decision was made known to some of us on the Hermosa Vista Facebook page that our sign most likely will not be preserved and incorporated into the project. Our community would like to know why. Maybe a brief history of how our sign came to be would help you, our leaders, understand why the <laughs> sign is extremely important to us. Our neighborhood sign is a brick and mortar landmark that was built and funded by neighborhood volunteers about 23 years ago to replace a decaying original wooden sign built by Wick Holmes, who was the developer of uh, the Hermosa Vista neighborhood in the mid-70s. We as a community have always cared a great deal about our neighborhood. A volunteer group using a custom uh, plan and sweat equity and their skills built forms, uh, poured concrete, laid bricks, and defined the structure with a frame. Contri contributions by most all of our 150 homeowners paid for these materials that would support the sign to last 50 plus years. What's more, regular cleanup of the sign's landscape area continued to be supported by community volunteers and more recently by willing neighbors, now funding a landscape crew to maintain uh, to continue this maintenance, rather. Over the years, most of our community have voluntarily contributed to this project. So, I've given you a little history of how the existing Hermosa Vista sign came to be. The next speaker is Joyce Rostock, who will speak about our community activities that bring us together and the sign as an important symbol of our neighborhood. Joyce? Uh, um, excuse me. Excuse <coughs> Kathy... Here, our next speaker is Ariel Bluestein. Now, is but Ms. Rostoff is on the list. Yes. 
She's number six. Okay, so how are we going to do this? So Ariel, Ariel Bluestein was next. What, why don't we go ahead and do the three speakers in okay. order? So that would be Joyce Rostock <coughs> and Pete Caputo. <coughs> Good evening, uh, Mayor Sweet, members of the council and staff members. My name is Joyce Rostock, and I lived, live on 81st Avenue Northeast in Hermosa Vista neighborhood. I have lived there for 47 years. Hermosa Vista's 150-plus homeowners have a strong sense of community and ded dedication to family values. As a community, we come together in several ways to meet and support each other. A large annual event is our neighborhood block party held every September on the cul-de-sac on 81st Avenue Northeast to meet and greet our neighbors and which is also the most an opportune time for to get to know our newest neighbors. Another event is Halloween. Parents sponsor a costume parade for our youngest residents. Of course, the children love the experience, which pr promotes a sense of belonging. Map Your Neighborhood for Earthquake Preparedness has made an excellent program for each homeowner to learn how to work together in a case of disaster, bring homeowners together street by street to meet a designated home and prepare, be prepared. Although plans to include the entire neighborhood we're progressing the pandemic hit, ending this vital program. In a recent call I made in early January, Christian Knight stated to me the existing Hermosa Vista sign, our landmark, will not be preserved or incorporated into this project. That is scheduled to bring, begin in spring 2023. We are extremely disappointed. Although not everyone in our neighborhood is aware of the pro potential demise of our sign because they did not receive notification, many who are aware have expressed a strong preference on the Hermosa Vista Facebook page of keeping the sign. So the consensus among many is to keep the sign. One young woman stated, and I quote, Please keep this sign. Hermosa, Mist, Hermosa Vista means beautiful view. The sign is to remember we are blessed to live in and be able to care for such a beautiful place. Uh, please don't allow our city, uh, please allow our city to maintain its character and history. Allowing architectural landmarks and structures to remain is a meaningful way to allow us to feel the depth and continuity of our place. Pete Caputo will be our last speaker. Thank you, Ms. Rossoff. My name is Pete Caputo. My family and I have lived in uh, Mosa Vista since 1978. My comments all relate to the Juanita Drive project to alter 100, the 112th Street and 80th Street Northeast intersection. Regarding our community signage, the current Hermosa Vista sign has been in place for at least 23 years. It was designed and paid for by the residents of Hermosa Vista and continues to be maintained by us, as was said. 
I feel, as others have said, is an important part of our neighborhood community. Losing it would definitely send the wrong message to our community. There's another, however, very important point to this proposed revision of 112th and 80th Street entries from Juanita Drive and is a major safety concern in my view. The real problem is many times I've witnessed cars speeding south down Juanita Drive, then without, shoot, without stopping, shooting up 112th like it's a slalom run. And while we're inching out trying to see if any cars are coming, that happens many, many times. The proposed revision adds more at the back of the intersection space on 80th and 112th, but does really nothing to mitigate the dangers of those cars going up 112th. <clears throat> nothing to open up the views up and down Juanita Drive so we can safely enter the road. Furthermore, there's a school bus stop on Juanita Drive at this intersection which adds to my safety concern. A revision proposal to this area that makes safety a priority would be adding a crosswalk on Juanita Drive at this intersection, adding a sidewalk and new wall, thereby eliminating the Hermosa Vista sign as well, suggest to pedestrians that the area is safe for walking, which is far from accurate and does not improve the intersection safety. A better approach would be improving the visibility up and down Juanita Drive trying to enter the roads by reducing the hill embankments that are on both sides of the entryway to the intersection. Two would be adding a reduced speed <laughs> signage in this area because we have bicycle paths going both ways. We have a school bus stop. And, and finally, adding a crosswalk. This approach, I believe, would save accidents and possibly lives at this busy intersection. Thank you for your time and your consideration to these comments. Thank you, Mr. Caputo. Mm -hmm. Mayor, the next three speakers are on the dog park, and they are Ariel Brustein, Kayani Robinson, and Rich Bolduc. <coughs> Welcome, Ariel. To some of you, having a dog park in Bridal Shales area may seem frivolous in this day and age of layoffs and budget cuts. Let me tell you what the dog park means to me and why we can't afford to not have a dog park at Snyder's Corner. After college, I got my first dog. This was a period in my life when I could barely get out of bed, I was in and out of the hospital, and my doctors were discussing the possibility of going on disability. I was battling with se severe depression and losing. I heard how people use pets for emotional support and decided to give it a try. Wilson, my dog, always managed to put a smile on my face. I had to get out of bed to feed him and take him out. Before long, I had the desire to get out of bed. I wasn't able to fight for myself, but I was able to fight for Wilson. After I moved to the Bridal Trails area, my partner and I got a second dog, Dee. Dee is a puppy and old man Wilson doesn't like to play with her. This meant that Dee was creating havoc in my house, leading to anxiety for both me and my partner. On my way to work one day, I passed a neon orange fence and I saw dogs playing there. It was Snyder's Corner. I took Dee there and before long, I had a community of people and dogs that embraced me. As a community, we've helped each other through illness and tragedy. We've leaned on each other during a time when it is hard to find people to lean on. 
We've celebrated each other's successes and had fun. We've come together as a group of people from different backgrounds, with different beliefs, and with different political views. We have done what many thought wasn't possible and built a bridge. In our community, we have healed the festering wounds of a broken country filled of struggling people. I have read the legislative memo about reopening Snyder's Corner Dog Park. I read the impact statement about parking in the surrounding mall areas. However, I know that the dog park is beneficial for those stores. We dog owners use those shops um, way more than we did before. I discovered Boba Lust, which has become a go-to hangout spot for my friend group. I discovered Grocery Outlet, whose owner has been really supportive of the park, and I shop there on my way home from the dog park. I know many of Snyder's Park community members meet at Downpour and rediscovered Thirsty Hop. We hold parties by purchasing ourselves Starbucks drinks and giving our dogs pup cups. The local Ace even donated hay for the park because they recognized how important the park is for their business. I know there has also been a concern about dogs and owners crossing the road to get to the park. Without the dog park, owners are walking on busy roads anyways, oftentimes at dark. This is very dangerous. So the dog park with lights and the controlled four-way crossings feels a lot safer to me. It is my opinion that it's much more fiscally responsible for the dog park um, to have it open. Um, it aids in mental health, boosts local businesses, and aids in community safety. Our community has volunteered to help spread mulch and chips and help with the daily maintenance. In summary, whether or not there's a small dog park, a big dog park, whether or not there's parking, we ask that you reopen the park. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lustein. The, the next speakers are Kiani Robinson, Rich Bullduke, and then Jackie Bowie. Welcome, Ms. Robinson. Hello. Oh, let me adjust this. All right. My name is Kiani, and I'm here to talk about Snyder's Corner Dog Park. I've been a Kirkland resident for one year, currently used to live in Bellevue, but moved over here. The way I found Snyder's Corner was on my way after work, I was just like, hey, I need to take my dog somewhere. So I saw Snyder's Corner on the way, and I was just like, hey, let's go play. And so that's how we found Snyder's Corner. And like Adriel, or Ariel, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, we built a community, we built a family that nobody else around us could have. And we keep adding people, which is amazing for a community that not a lot of people have. Um, I have read the report on reopening the dog park. I want to emphasize um, the importance of Snyder's Corner, both for safety as a location that is out in the open and the um, equality as there are no uh, dog parks in South Kirkland and the three dog parks that are located in North Kirkland. As a young woman, I don't feel safe going to the isolated dog parks on my own. They are tucked away from visibility of the streets and require walking through. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm nervous. Uh, require walking through overgrown areas. Snyder's Corner is visible from the street, which feels less vulnerable. The drive to Snyder's is just a couple minutes away from where I live. I'm asking you direct, I mean, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. <sighs> I'm asking that you direct the parks for the department to immediately reopen a park at Snyder's Corner. I believe it is more fiscally responsible to open the larger park now and the proposed footprint for option one, thus reducing the expense of opening a smaller park now and the larger park in May. I have been at the property just this week and see that there are no puddles in the area that could be used for parking is already flat and graveled. 
the opportunity to be able to provide this is so this so quickly it feels like it would be a great win for the parks department and the city and at a relatively low lift our community remains enthusiastic for any voluntary opportunities i do ask that you provide double gates like the one at Juanita for safety for our dogs thank you again for the thank you again for this park and you've given us a community that nobody really provided in the area so i appreciate you guys and for being elected officials, I think this kind of does fall on your guys' responsibility to provide for the community as we have elected you to be our leaders in the city. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> Thank you, Ms. Robinson. The next speaker is Rich Bolduc, followed by two virtual speakers, Jackie Bowie and David Godfrey. Welcome, Mr. Bolduc. Hi, my name is Rich. I've been a Kirkland resident for nearly a year. Uh, finding Snyder's do uh, Corner Dog Park has been one of the greatest resources I've been able to find. Uh, previously, I was going to the dog pop-up dog park in Bothell, but it was taken down. And later in the summer, I was able to find Snyder's Corner. Um, originally, I thought it would just be like any other dog park, kind of single serving with occasional re regulars, but I was wrong. I was instantly welcomed into the community in October, my dog, John and... My dog, Johnny Walker, passed away. To my surprise, the community pulled together, supported me, and even threw a wake for my dog. After this, uh, I started continuing to spend my time with everyone, including going to a Thanksgiving hangout. After that, uh, I ended up adopting a, another dog named Willow. Uh, she's a German Shepherd uh, mix puppy with a lot, a lot more energy than my last dog. Uh, and sadly, the, uh, the park is not available, so I have to figure out creative ways to be able to burn off her energy. Uh, the great thing is, though, she has uh, instantly made friends with all the other all the other dog buddies. Um, the truth is, I've been fortunate to to find such a great group, not only for me but for Willow's growth. And uh, I read I read the report uh, regarding uh, reopening the dog park. Uh, I have some some questions regarding the results. For example, there was a statement regarding the. Uh, lack of ADA accessibility. I noticed that Jasper's Park, there's a narrow path that's really muddy and it doesn't look like it's really ADA, uh, you know, in line with ADA uh, specifications. Um, at Juanita, there's no uh, handicapped parking. In fact, there's an adjacent park, uh, parking area that is designed for the youth east side services. And when it rains there, which, you know, does that a lot here in Washington, um, there's big puddles, they're practically ponds, uh, which we didn't see any of that in any of the rains uh, at Snyder's Corner. Um, our ask is that, you know, you guys put in the uh, double gates for safety for the dogs, um, just like uh, Juanita's, Juanita Park. Um, in my opinion, this park is kind of a lot like the, the, the theme song for Cheers. You know, you, you uh, 
go there after work, exchange ideas, have a good time, build relationships. It's a sense of community, you know, home away from home. And in the past Mr. seven Raduka. years that I've been here in the greater Seattle area. Mr. Duke, I hate to interrupt you, oh. but you've yeah. run out of time. Thank you. Thank you very much. The next three speakers are, or the next two speakers are virtual, and the first one is Jackie Bowie, followed by David Godfrey, and then on site is Kelly Beauregard. <coughs> Welcome, Ms. Bowie. Thank you. Um, Hello, and thank you for considering this excitement opportunity for youth Eastside services. Um, our proposal for the city of Kirkland to provide behavioral health services at the newly reopened Kirkland Teen Union Building KTUG. Um, my name is Jackie Bowie. I've also been overseeing our community outreach counseling program based at KTUG with multiple partners since uh, about 2007. Um, YES mission is to help youth reach their full, full potential, strengthen their families, and advocate for the safe, caring, and equitable community through behavioral health support, expert interventions, outreach, and education. Uh, YES therapists and psychiatrists use trauma-informed, evidence-based, strength-based approaches to focus on client identifying needs and goals. Our services include individual and family counseling, and group work, and we serve children and youth from birth to age 22. Um, YES proposed to provide low barrier behavioral health services at KTA by locating a full-time staff there, a, du a duly certified clinician with mental health and substance use disorder background, who will use as evidence-based trauma-informed approach that integrate diversity, equity, inclusions, and belonging practices to provide accommodations to drop-in services and longer-term behavioral health treatment for young people in crisis. Uh, we will provide a designated 10 hours a week for drop-in services to reach youth who would not otherwise think out behavioral health services and 30 hours a week to provide long-term behavioral health counseling and treatment for young people and their family members, treating them directly so that they cannot refer to a long wait list for services locally due to a high demand from the community. YES will help create a welcoming, safe, and belonging place for youth at KTUB reaching youth in particular who are not currently engaged in school or are being homeschooled or those who have barriers to accessing non-traditional counseling services along with their family members and natural support who are involved in the young person's life. YES staff will target BIPOC youth at KTUB, including African-American, Black youth, immigrant and refugee youth, reducing barriers to accessing behavioral health services by meeting young people where they are. We have found that creating a welcoming, safe, and belonging space to develop trust and rapport with youth and families allow young people from BIPOC communities to engage with need services more effectively. And if in-person services, services are not possible, YES staff can provide our services via telephone, I'm sorry, via telehealth to reach young people and their parents or caregivers. We are so grateful for this opportunity for YES to continue to make a positive difference in a young person's lives, as well as remove gaps and barriers for youth and their family, accessing behavioral health, support services, and culturally responsive ways. Thank you, Ms. Bowie. I'm afraid your, your time is up. Yep. Thanks Thank you. For, thanks for coming.
Thank you, Mayor. The next speaker is David Godfrey. He's also virtual, followed by Kelly Beauregard on site and Jan Young. Welcome, Mr. Godfrey. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor and City Council. Thank you for the opportunity to address you tonight. I'm here on behalf of People for Climate Action to talk to you about uh, item 9A, your legislative agenda. When you shop for a car, you look at a miles per gallon sticker. And when you shop for an appliance, you see the yellow sticker that describes the amount of energy the appliance uses. Wouldn't it be helpful if when you shop for a home, it had a label that could tell you about the energy performance of that home? You'd be able to compare homes and plan your budget based on estimated monthly energy costs. Homeowners could make improvements like adding insulation or installing a heat pump that make their homes more comfortable and less expensive to operate with the knowledge that the value of those improvements will be recognized by the marketplace at the time of sale. And what if that sticker also gave you a prioritized list of energy improvements that could save you money in the long run? Well, I have good news. House Bill 1433 was filed this morning by Representative Davina Dur of the 1st District, which includes parts of Kirkland. HB 1433 sets up infrastructure at the state level for a uniform method of conducting and reporting home labeling. The Home Energy Score is a system developed by the Federal Department of Energy, and it has all the benefits we were just dreaming about. There's nothing in 1433 that's mandatory, but it does allow local governments to require home energy scoring, for example, at the time of sale if they wish. Now, I'm sure you're all thinking, wait a minute, doesn't Action B1-3.4 of our adopted sustainability master plan say something about all this? Oh, yes, you're right. It says you should work with K4C to implement energy performance ratings for all homes at time of sale so that prospective buyers can make informed decisions about energy costs and carbon emissions. I hope because of all the benefits that will come to Kirkland residents and the fact that our adopted sustainability master plan calls for home energy scoring, Tonight, you will add HB 1433 to the list of bills our city is supporting this legislative session. Thank you, council and staff, for all you do to manage the complex world of city government. Thank you, Mr. Godfrey. Thank you. Our next speaker next is speaker. Kelly Beauregard on site, followed by Jan Young on, by phone and Alex Zimmerman. Then Welcome. Scott Brady. Welcome, Ms. Beauregard. Thank you. I don't know if I'll be that funny, uh, but good evening. Uh, my name is Kelly Beauregard. I am a Finn Hill resident, and I'm here tonight actually uh, on behalf of my role as Director of Community Outreach for Kirkland National Little League to speak to show support for the proposed changes to the Municipal Code regarding park banners and especially the proposed athletic field advertising program. On behalf of Kirkland National Little League, we want to provide additional context as to why this is so important to us as a nonprofit organization. Little League is about more than just playing a sport. This is about it being inclusive and giving every child an opportunity to be a part of something, regardless of race, gender, physical ability, <laughs> skill level, or financial situation. To learn life lessons to use on and off the field, to create new friendships, and to understand the value of community. As stated in the packet details, a program which allows for youth sports organizations to solicit sponsorships from local businesses in return for local marketing and branding opportunities has the potential to benefit everyone involved. The fundraising opportunity allows organizations like ours to offset costs for our families and in exchange encourages our families to support and promote the local businesses in our city. 
I thought it would be helpful to provide real examples of how we would hope to benefit from the proposed changes being discussed today. First and foremost, to address our primary mission budget shortfall. For the first time in several years, we had to make the difficult decision to raise our registration fees this year. We are painfully aware that our families are struggling with uh, adapting to this post-COVID economy and inflation that hasn't seen, been seen in decades, but the fact is we are feeling it as well. Even with the increase in fees, our budget is projecting a shortfall of almost $6,000 when it comes to just looking at registration fees covering the costs of the primary missions of the league, which is Little League fees, field fees, equipment, and uniforms. The second way we would hope to benefit is through promoting inclusivity through scholarships. Especially with those increase in fees, the last thing we want to do is have that cost be a barrier for any child, and we actively promote our scholarships to our families. And then third, we want to continue to invest in our players. We have a special designated special projects part of our budget that looks to develop skills training programs, grant writing, and special awards to recognize players for their skills outside of just those on the diamonds. These would be very important to us. As you can see, the potential of additional income raised through an enhanced sponsorship program would be tremendously beneficial in helping us meet all these goals. With such attractive locations within our boundaries as Juanita Beach and the new 132nd Fields, we're confident we can offer a mutually beneficial partnership with many local businesses to support each other's success within the city. In closing, thank you again the time you've given me tonight and over the past several weeks on this topic. We appreciate all you're doing to help us meet the Little League mission of building stronger individuals and communities. Thank you, thank Ms. Borgard. <coughs> Jan Young has asked to be moved to the public hearing. So the next two speakers are Alex Zimmerman on site and Scott Brady virtually. Mr. Welcome, Mr. Zimmerman. Yeah. Oh, my damn dirty Nazi Gestapo democracy fascist. Uh, Map and Psycho. My name is Alex Zimmerman. I am right now a candidate for Bellevue City Council 23. I come today to speak with you about something that is making me absolutely sick, and I live in this location for 35 years. My east side is my lovely cities, all of it. Four basic. Wesley Island, Bellevue, Kirkland, Redmond. So the situation right now is very interesting, you know what this means, because... Uh, we will have sound transistry this year, probably, yeah. What is Consul Balducci, for example, in country, push and push and push, it costs us a billion and billion dollars for nothing. Yeah, this one point. Another point is Amazon will become. Amazon and Bellevue will be bring 30,000 slaves from jungle, you know what this means? So life right now in all this site will be like nightmare. So. Situation right now very simple. Is this nightmare life come right now to crime? And I don't want what is we look like a downtown Seattle. So my proposition very simple right now to every city, what is I speak right now in a side, you know what this means? We need open a public commission com committee, police public committee, you know what this means? So we can talking about this with policemen in doing something for stopping this crime. Because crime here. It's a nightmare. I cannot imagine where is better location for life than east side, what is we have right now. 
So my proposition to you, stop acting like Democrat mafia, like a bandito, you know what this means. Open police commissioner and start talking about crime in first place every day, 24-7. Crime make us life miserable. You don't know what is mean sound transit. You know what is mean. I live in big city in my life, very big city. It's a nightmare. You know what is mean. Criminal move from one place to another. You can never ever catch them. <laughs> So, guys, we need something doing about this, because election, what is you have, Bellevue have, another city, what is have right now, need bring people who will care first about people, and crime is key to everything, housing, transportation. This is exactly what is we need doing right now. So I right now ask to everybody who want to be a candidate in Kirkland for 23, come here and start talking about big problem, what is we have. I like dogs, I never have, uh, I don't have dogs. Yeah. But yeah, I don't like dogs, yeah. But we can need talking about something what is very serious. Stand up America, stand up Kirkland people. We need change this council and bring back to normal Thank what is we have for Thank last you, 35 years. Thank you very much. The next and last speaker signed up for items from the audience is Scott Brady, and he's virtual. Good evening, council members, mayor. Thank you for your time today. Welcome, Mr. Brady. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a very busy evening so far. We've heard about efficiency stickers, which I personally disagree with having just read through the text of the bill. Uh, my two cents is that uh, penalizing people for the efficiency of their home during a sale process is simply more paperwork for nothing. We've also heard about dog parks, which are important, equity efforts, great important, neighborhood signs, little league crime, road safety, housing, a lot of really important topics. So I can understand why my topic might not seem so important. And frankly, it will seem very familiar as I have appeared before you numerous times on this subject. Unfortunately, uh, I have a nuisance-burning neighbor, and much has been done about this topic. And I appreciate the effort so far of the City Council, especially uh, a couple of the, the members there, Curtis and Nixon specifically. I also appreciate the efforts of the City Attorney's Office, the Fire Department, and everyone involved. However, the issue is still ongoing. And I that we can get some resolution on this because uh, when I came here last year, the problem had been ongoing for quite a long time. We're heading into our fourth year now of this. And uh, I'd really like to see some action here before it gets any better. Uh, you know, it was 52 degrees outside, not quite t-shirt weather, unless you're seasoned Northwesterner, but that was warm enough to uh, really negate the need to be burning garbage today, but it happened. And it happens all too regularly. When we had our coldest times, there was no need to burn garbage, apparently. But, you know, I would like to go into the spring and the summer this year without having to worry about stepping outside and being poisoned by a burnt garbage burning neighbor. Uh, one of the items that I previously requested from the city was a review of code related to garbage service that would disallow individuals who have been uh, found to be nuisance burners from having the ability to select monthly garbage service and thus pile up their trash to torch at regular intervals. And uh, I hope sincerely that you'll take that under advisement. Now, 
I don't know what I need to do aside from being a big pest about all this to, to incentivize further action. So I'm just going to make this plea. Please don't let me have to deal with this for another summer. It's too much. It's been too much. And I think that actions are underway. We just need to drive that home. I'm confident that with your support, we can get that done. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And I will give you back however many seconds I have uh, left. Thank have you, nice Mr. Brady. No other items from the audience sign up. If, is there anyone else who would like to address the council at this time? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience. Oh, are you a yes? Thank you. Therefore, I will declare this public. Um, items from the audience hearing closed. This takes us to item number six. Public hearings. This is a public hearing to receive public comments on permanent supportive housing at the former La Quinta in sight. We are limiting this public hearing to 60 minutes. We are limiting each speaker's time to three minutes, which should allow for up to 20 speakers. Uh, I will now open the public hearing and call upon the city manager. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So before the speakers start, we have a short presentation by Jim Lopez, our Deputy City Manager for External Affairs, uh, to provide some context for the proposals that we'll be taking testimony on. Mr. Lopez. Welcome, Mr. Lopez. Thank you so much. Good to see you. It's nice to see you. Thank you, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council. It's my pleasure to be here before you tonight talking about our health through housing uh, this presentation prior to the public hearing. I know we want to get to the public hearing, so I will move expeditiously through the update on the uh, status of our agreement. I would like to thank uh, Darcy Ehlers and Andriana Campbell, part of the city team. There's a lot of detail tonight. We're going to go in a lot of detail. And there's been a lot of detail throughout this process, and there's been a lot of staff work associated with it, so I'm very grateful. I'm also, I would also like to call out and thank Leo Floor and Simon Foster from the county for being here tonight. Thank you both very much, in case there are questions that the council would like to direct. And also, just a, a big thank you to the, to the community. Um, there's been so much done over the last year, and many people have made time out of their personal agenda to sit with me and talk with me, and I'm grateful to all of that and all of you. So with that, we have a four-part presentation. No surprise there. We'll start with a recommendation, which is very straightforward, that you hear um, testimony tonight on the permanent supportive housing agreement between the city of Kirkland and King County and the services agreement between the county and the future operator of the facility. The whole structure of tonight's presentation is around these documents, which the county has agreed to come to an agreement with on the city, which we think is probably an unprecedented act of transparency on the county to answer a lot of questions from the community up front before the agreement is uh, started, before the facility uh, is started to be built. So very briefly, as background, this um, process is defined by Resolution 5522, which was passed by the council on March 1st of 2022. Seems like just yesterday. Um, that agreement had in it what's called a term sheet. And the term sheet is a broad uh, uh, description of what we need to come to agreement on in more detail. 
And it's that detail that forms the substance of our work since 5522, the detail that brings the term sheet to life. And that's really what governs our work with the county. What did we agree to and how can we turn that into an agreement? Now, staff presented at council on November 15th and we have reviewed council's uh, recommendations from November 15th. Throughout the process, the city and county have continued to be in negotiations right up till this very evening. And we thank you for that. Um, this presentation outlines the changes that we've made during the period between November and tonight. Uh, there may be even some additional uh, comments I could make about the status of our negotiations. There will be a public hearing that follows this presentation. Um, thank you for that. This is an opportunity for the community to provide feedback directly to the council on the work to date. So with that as background, um, I'm really going to focus council on two essential points that the council, we would like the council to consider and provide feedback on. And those two points are first around, well, let me, let me uh, start with some general changes and then I'll get into the two points. The general changes are, um, for the most part, these are kind of housekeeping changes. We've made some term changes, permanent supportive housing and community health engagement were defined. We took the word overnight from the camping provision. There's just no camping. Uh, some of these comments came from the community, some of these more detailed comments. The word local was added to construction permit requirements. We add detailed expectations and metrics in section three. I think Councilmember Pascoe had asked about that in our last meeting. We made modifications to section eight to clarify the reservation of authority with respect to the, the concept of vesting. And this, I think, came from conversations with the Eastside Preparatory Academy. We wanted to clarify some uh, potential concerns about LUPA. I mean, we're really going into details here, but we've been trying to be responsible as, as much as we can. We eliminated the legal description, which I was bummed about, but I, I joke because that was just too much. Don't need it. We modified Section 9 with respect to state, the rights and responsibilities of the parties in the process of a termination. This uh, was pretty straightforward. We wanted to make sure it was clear where we stood if there was a breach by the parties. We updated Section 10 on dispute resolution to give the city a little bit more authority to work with the county should the operator not be performing, and we thank the county for that. And we also included something with real teeth. I think that, um, we talked about a council a $1,000 a day penalty for breach in Section 11. So real teeth to the contract. I know the council had asked about that. So those are some of the, here are some of the, those were some of the changes we made, some of the additional, uh, and these are all outlined in my packet. Safety and security was added for training, um, city consent before the change of certain programs. I'll talk a little bit more about city consent soon, modified sections to explicitly include consultation with the community and the development of code of conduct and community relations plan. This was another suggestion I think that came from Eastside Preparatory School. We put that language in that the community would be involved in that. Modified section two on camping, again, overnight is out. So the two issues that I uh, talked about earlier, the two issues are essentially to the, what extent is the county doing criminal background checks? Or I guess it's a better way to say it is to what extent is the county being compliant with Resolution 5522's obligation 
that they not allow folks in the facility that are not allowed to be there by state law under the sex offender statute, which is in the packet for the exact site of the sex offender statute and the specific crimes that run afoul of that statute if you commit those crimes. Now, it's important to phrase it that way because this background check was the city's response to kind of the commonsensical approach to how we might expect with some measure of detail, the county to be compliant with that requirement. Now, they agree to that in 5522. So our communications with the county have centered around this as a means to an end, but the end is that you're compliant with the pledge to not allow folks who are not allowed to be there. Now, we've given two options here. One is a traditional criminal background check, and, we've, and I'll outline the kind of side-by-side -side here as to what all this means. So, so on the left-hand side, the, this is just kind of a standard city of Kirkland. This proposed process is legal name, um, last four digits of your social security number. This is a nationwide screening. Um, we also added for folks that aren't in the 880-foot category an individual assessment for other folks who have been convicted of a sex crime to look back for 10 years. Now again, the city put this in because we needed to fill in the details about compliance with 5522. The county has proposed a, a different process, but a process designed to achieve the exact same ends, which is compliance with 5522. And the county's process is very thoughtful because the county's process is consistent with the housing first model of no barriers to entry. We don't. The, we did get a lot of feedback from the community about the requirement of a criminal background process. The requirement of signing an authorization may be a barrier for somebody who's otherwise inclined to come into this housing. The housing first model is to bring people into housing and then figure out how we can help them. Now, the county's process um, focuses on the sexual registry. So if somebody's on the registry, they are going to find out, for the most part, if somebody runs afoul of the state law prohibiting folks to come on the premises within 880 feet. We had some concerns because we weren't sure what registry the county was talking about. We also have concerns about people that don't actually sign up for the registry as to whether or not they would be captured in this process. So uh, that's kind of where we left it with the county. And, um, the county, interestingly, went beyond 5522 in their proposal. They've, they went beyond by saying the screenings will include person's behavior, physical health, previous legal system contact, history with involuntary treatment, um, and they would do an annual review for any new relevant state or local law prohibiting sex offense requirements. So this would be an annual review according to their processes. So. One of the things we've been speaking with the county about is whether or not they would be willing to disclose what specific registry they're using, because there is a registry in law enforcement that's much more comprehensive than the registry open to the public. And it's our understanding now that the registry that the county is talking about is, in fact, that more, more um, specific and um, appropriate, in this case, registry from law enforcement, so it would be more comprehensive. And we're working with the county, and we think we may be close to an agreement with the county about using a database to supplement that registry 
with an online search, which doesn't require a social security number, but would disclose somebody's criminal history. And with those two components, we feel the county would be compliant with 5522's prohibition on 880 feet. So we're working on that, and I can answer more questions on that as we move forward. These kind of conversations are evolving, and Leo Floor and Simon are here tonight to talk about that as well. But this is where we are in the criminal background screening process. How do we get to 5522's mandate that the city council can feel comfortable that the process articulated by the county is going to capture those people that should not be there by law? So the second of the two issues involves the supporting documents of the agreement. The, the community has raised several issues about the city council's role in approving these documents. Now remember, we're bringing life to 5522, so we're trying to get as much detail as we can up front, but 5522 simply says the county, the operator, and the county must have a code of conduct, and we include a guest policy as part of a code of conduct, a community relations plan, and a safety and security plan. Those are the three things in the term sheet. We don't actually have a good neighbor agreement in the term sheet. The county has pledged to do that as part of their implementation. It gets a little confusing because there's a lot of, we call it a good neighbor commitment, and there's a good neighbor agreement as part of a code of conduct. It, there's just terms everywhere in this process. So I've asked Leo if we could just include a good neighbor agreement as part of what the city approves, just like the other documents, and he has agreed to that. And I thank you for that, Leo. Essentially, what the county has already agreed to in the code of conduct, the security plan, and the community relations plan, when you couple that with the services document, we're already talking about all of these things anyway. But I think for the clarity for the community, we're gonna include a good neighbor agreement as well in that, we're gonna make that change. The question the community asks is who's, some members of the community are asking, is who's making that call? Right now, 5522 requires that these documents are approved after the operator selected. A lot of these documents involve the residents and the local community, and there's just a lot of people involved associated with the facility in making these agreements, which is consistent with the normal course of business for these types of agreements. But for the record, what we're putting in the actual language in the contract is that it's subject to approval of the city of Kirkland. That is subject to our, our own, I think, interpretation of how we wanna do that. And we can talk about that in more detail. I don't think it forecloses city council action, but it is in the county's interest to move through these documents with partnership with the community expeditiously so that they can get this project up and going. So I've attached examples of a code of conduct, a guest policy, an actual good neighbor agreement from Auburn as part of the council packet. I have sent this out to the community. These are the types of agreements that we would be working on as we implement this process and that the city of Kirkland, however we define that, would be approving them before they go. I think the police chief approves the security plan, but there is always a checkpoint. I always look to Darcy to get the head nod and see if I've got the provision right. So just to help with all of these documents, we've created this scheme, this graphic. 
So on the left, you see the permanent supportive housing agreement. I think we've created this agreement. I don't think it, agree it existed before this process. And the permanent supportive housing agreement does a lot with respect to the expectations of the operator that you might find in a good neighbor agreement. A lot of that is right in the permanent supportive housing agreement. What we've done cleverly is we've added the operator services agreement as an exhibit. And we've said to the county, when the council approves this document, you must approve a substantially similar document. This allows the community to see the terms and conditions that we expect from the operator, which is hasn't been selected yet. And the constant refrain from the county, which I think is quite legitimate, is that they have to get an operator, and this has to be attractive for an operator. Once these documents are approved by the city council, and these are the two seminal documents, the services agreement can be approved and amended <coughs> by the city manager, but only consistent with the uh, PSHA, the Permanent Supportive Housing Agreement, and 5522. The city manager cannot vary from the mandate of the council in those two documents. Now, the next step, this is a timeline, this graphic. The next step is the operator selection. So if, if all goes forward, the council is approving the PSHA and the services agreement, the model services agreement. The county would then go out and select an operator. The city of Kirkland participates and concurs in that process. So we are a part of the process that selects the operator. Under our current timeline, and this hopefully brings clarity to all the document names, we will then work with the county, the service providers, the community members, other jurisdictional partners to create a code of conduct. We created something called a community relations plan, which is in 5522. We would work with the county, the operator, jurisdictional partners, community members, and the safety and security plan with the Kirkland Police Department and the operator. Those documents then would be created once the operator is selected, and they would come back to the city of Kirkland for approval. If you take the code of conduct, the community relations plan, the safety and security plan, and the services agreement, you essentially have a good neighbor agreement. But to the extent we are going to have a separate document called a good neighbor agreement, we're going to bring that back for approval now, too. We're going to make that edit in our documents, just for clarity and communication for the community. And I thank you, Leo, for that. So here's the framework and the timeline about how these documents are created, when they're created, and who they report back to. And that's a big issue that's been raised, and I think appropriately raised by the community to find clarity about those issues. Now, there is one last issue, and then I'll turn it back over to you, Madam Mayor, which is the code of conduct. I think a lot of the community questions, and I think Councilmember Nixon, hello to, to Scotland, um, <coughs> uh, raised this in the last meeting about what is the reach of the code of conduct. And I think Councilmember Pascal, and I know Councilmember Black asked us actually to go out and talk with outside counsel, which we did. And the code of conduct is part of the lease, and it is an enforceable document. So a violation of the code of conduct, and I think this will bring some measure of reassurance to the community, is in fact, could be in fact, a violation of the terms and conditions of your lease, which could, but not necessarily must, 
result in an eviction or a request to leave, a requirement that you leave the facility. It's subject to the normal processes of landlord-tenant law. You still have to go through the just cause processes. But I think what is important, and the county wrote to us, and I thank you for the, the response. We sent it out to the community in a comprehensive response. Failure to abide by the code of conduct and the rules governing the housing can mean a resident can lose their apartment. And in direct response to Councilmember Nixon's question, that might include conduct outside the premises of the facility, selling drugs in the neighborhood or doing other things in the neighborhood. You still have to do a case-by-case -case basis. It's not a, a must-make-be. You don't, just because that happens doesn't mean you're evicted. Just like in the private sector, if you get into trouble outside of your apartment complex, it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna lose your apartment. But there is that possibility. And I think that's being directly responsive to the council because the council did pose that question and we are comfortable with that answer. Unless Darcy gives me a stare and tells me she's not comfortable with that. I'd make one clarification. Please. It's a um, breach of a material term of a lease. So if there were terms of the code of conduct that weren't determined to be material, then they couldn't be a basis for eviction under, a basis for just cause under the... Landlord Tenant Act. It has to be material, and they still have to go through the judicial process, and they have to determine that it was worthy of an eviction. So there are a lot of terms in there that I've talked about. Hopefully the graphic and the timeline helps give an explanation of where all the terms fit. We've gone through this painful detail as an exercise for our community and for you, Council, so that you could see as much of the um, expected next steps as possible through the agreements with the county and we thank the county for their time and their commitment to this. I know we're probably considered a little bit of, to be a pain over there but um, we think it's super important work and um, we think it's helpful to the process. And Madam Mayor with that I think the next steps is that we hold a public hearing during this session. We certainly will continue negotiations with the county where we feel we're close to an end with council direction. Um, staff is expected to return in February, potentially February 21st, although that's beyond my pay grade, with a proposed resolution authorizing the city manager to complete this work and a preliminary draft plan outlining an equitable local referral network. There's a whole body of work, as uh, Stuart early reminds me, uh, in the model of how important it is to have a network of, a vibrant network of referral um, agencies as part of this process. We need to get going on that. So, Madam Mayor, back to you. Thank you, Mr. Lopez. I ask council members to hold questions for staff until after public comments are received. I will now call upon any members of the public who signed up to address the council. Please limit your remarks to three minutes. Your remarks must be confined to the issue of permanent supportive housing at the former La Quinta Inn property. I have allocated one hour for public comments, although I may extend that time depending on how many members of the public have signed up to address the council. Written comments will also be accepted and have been accepted. Telephone participants should dial star nine to be recognized to speak and Zoom participants should click on the participants box to raise your hand to be recognized to speak. With that, <coughs> Ms. Anderson. Council, you have 20 people signed up for the public hearing at this point, and the first three are Jenny Jager, who is virtual, Sam Uzwak, 
and Karina O'Malley. Welcome, Ms. Jager. Hi, uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to speak. Uh, my name is Jenny Yeager and I'm a resident of Kirkland. I'm calling to speak in favor of keeping the Health Through Housing program as low barrier and as destigmatizing as possible. Let's, keep the, let's let the program help as many people as possible. In a previous meeting, I shared the story of a relative, Uncle Ron, who was a veteran on a fixed income. Uncle Ron was a very proud man who wanted respect, independence, and a peaceful life. However, he suffered from chronic mental health issues that made living independently difficult. High housing costs here forced him to move to a much less expensive area of Utah, far from his support network of friends and family. He died there alone and many years prematurely without a network of support that might have uh, given him a higher quality of life and a much longer life. City Council members, when you decide on the rules for the Health for Housing program, I ask you for the sake of people like Uncle Ron, please be generous about who can receive services and housing. Please be flexible and respectful of the dignity of the residents of the program. Lives like my Uncle Ron's depend on it. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Yeager. The next speaker is Sam Uzwak, and Sam is on site. Welcome, Mr. Uzwak. Thank you. Members of the City Council, my name is Sam Uzwak. I am the head of school elect at Eastside Preparatory School. I tonight am speaking on behalf of the board and leadership of EPS, uh, many of whom are joining remotely. We appreciate this opportunity to provide public testimony on an issue that is of central importance to EPS. Throughout the process, EPS has been supportive of the city's and county's basic goal of helping address homelessness in our region. Simultaneously, EPS has consistently asked the city and county to act responsibly by taking steps to address reasonable safety and compatibility concerns in light of the unique location of the proposed PSH facility immediately adjacent to our school and to other preschools and daycares. To that end, we have appreciated the opportunity to work with city staff in the past several weeks to discuss ways of addressing our concerns through common sense solutions. We recognize and we appreciate that the current drafts include some changes we have requested chiefly including a role in the community planning process. While those are important and helpful changes, we are requesting that the city and county make at least two additional changes to the agreements. We have provided written comments that provide more detail. I hope you've had a chance to review that document. Our first request is that the code of conduct must include a ban on deadly weapons, including firearms, to protect residents, staff, and the community. This important restriction is both reasonable and logical. Our letter provides citations and explanations in support of the legality of this restriction. 
Second, the agreements must include a robust initial and ongoing annual screening process for all residents, again, to ensure the safety and security of residents, staff, and our community. We know staff has asked for council's guidance on this topic. We asked the council to, to direct staff to add two key components. One, the screening process must not be only for prospective tenants, but existing tenants on an ongoing annual basis. Two, the screening process should be broadened significantly to apply to a wider range of convictions or pending charges, including those listed in our letter, classified felonies and gross misdemeanors under the specific chapters of the RCW. These are crucial changes. We ask the council to direct the city staff to implement these, and if needed, we would welcome the opportunity to work with the county and continue the work with the city staff. Thank, Thank you, you for your time. Your next speaker is Karina O'Malley. She's virtual, followed by Lene Novziger, also virtual. Welcome, Ms. O'Malley. Hello, I am Karina O'Malley. Thank you for this opportunity to speak. I'm a longtime Kirkland resident and a, have a long time been involved in trying to lessen the trauma of homelessness for folks on the east side. I've more recently been involved in walking alongside folks who had been living unsheltered and have moved into, an apart, into apartments um, in Kirkland, Bellevue, Redmond, and all over the east side. Some of these folks are doing great. Some are fine. All they needed was a little rent assistance. But for many folks that I work with, a little help with rent is all that they were offered and it is not enough. I am visiting folks who are sometimes not sure if what they're experiencing in their apartment is a recurrence of their paranoia or schizophrenia or a rational reaction to dangerous conditions. I'm visiting with folks who are struggling with the impulse to keep everything that they touch nearby and close at hand in case they need it because they remember distinctly not having what they needed and they're being threatened with eviction for hoarding. I'm working with folks who can get a job for a little while but depression keeps them in bed after and often enough to lose their job and then they can't make rent and the next job is harder to get. I am working with folks who have done the incredibly hard job of getting away from addictive substances and are now isolated in their apartments because they had to break off social contact with folks who are still using and they're lonely and they're scared and they don't have the support they need. These are folks who I imagine would do better with some on-site assistance and consistent trained support. Folks that I really wish the La Quinta site had been ready for last year. But I am excited to refer folks that I know who are still unsheltered to live at La Quinta. My friends who are struggling, who will need support when they're in housing. And I am excited to offer them this incredibly important resource sooner rather than later. So we have seen in the paper how devastatingly lethal homelessness was in King County last year. A staggering 310 folks died while homeless in King County last year. 
nearly twice the mortality rate of housed folks. Please, please, whatever you're doing, and honestly, we will adapt to whatever requirements you need, but please let me know when we can move my friends inside because we are all tired of waiting. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ms. O'Malley. The next speaker is Lene Nobsiger, followed by Jennifer Loy and Dietmar Schimmel. <coughs> Ms. Nobsiger? Okay, let's go to Jennifer Loy. Who was Lene Neighbors Virtual? Lene. Oh, oh I'm sorry, Jennifer. She's virtual. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Ms. Novsiker. Yes. Thank you for this opportunity to um, state my support for the PSA project. Um, it's happening near my neighborhood of Houghton, where I've lived for more than 22 years. Um, I have a couple of things to say, but my main two points are that I hope that we can move forward with this with as few barriers and as quickly as possible, um, because permanent supporting supportive housing like this saves lives and clearly the number of unhoused people who died in King County last year is completely unacceptable. Um, my second point is that we should not penalize people for being poor by asking them to meet standards that those of us who are not poor and unhoused do not need to meet. So again, I hope that we keep the barriers to this project low and the barriers for entry into it um, accessible uh, and appropriate so that all of our members of our community can stay safe and well. I'm looking forward to welcoming our new neighbors in the near future. And I thank you, the council, for all of their work on this project. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mrs. Novsker. Your next speaker is Jennifer Loy and followed by Detmar Schimmel and Jack Stott, who will be virtual. Welcome, Ms. Loy. Thank you. Um, in the spirit of partnership and expeditious uh, speech, I'm going to be reading my prepared remarks. Um, I did have an opportunity to look at some of the, um, the updates that had been done to the documents. And um, there are a few things I'd like to draw to your attention that um, could possibly be problematic in the long run. Uh, first, I'd like to say that the latest numbers I've seen is that there's about 13,000 unhoused people in King County, and I think we need to keep in perspective that this facility has about 129 rooms, so we're really looking at kind of a pretty small group that's going to have the opportunity to live here. Um, you must insist on full background checks to ensure the safety of the other residents in the facility and the staff working there. Isn't it relevant if a resident raped or murdered somebody 12 to 15 years ago? The current update extends some checks to just 10 years. How can the operator that you select properly put together a security plan or manage a resident's case without a complete understanding of their history? The appendix, docu the appendix documents. Um, Auburn is referenced. Um, this facility is not up and running. It looks like a nice rough draft, but there's not a lot of detail there. But, and it's also, the reference is a facility that's not up and running. 
The scaffolding of the House Rules document doesn't address in the community fully enough. It does say no solicitation, which is good, but we need to know more about what happens in the community off-site. The code of conduct should be detailed and completed to a level of specificity beyond the Auburn document prior to the request for proposal process. Auburn's agreement is a good start, but not granular enough to protect city interests. Operators should bid with full disclosure what the good neighbor musts are from the city of Kirkland. Overall, there are not enough guardrails around residents' behavior in the community. This is the time to advocate for the future residents and the community. King County is not an expert with decades of gold standard experience. The city will only be on offense until you sign these legal agreements and select the operator. Document in detail what is important to King County or what is important that King County and the operators would not naturally be incented to do. Supportive. Do you have the names of the inpatient and outpatient mental health and drug rehab facilities residents will be able to access from La Quinta? Do they exist at this time? Do they have capacity for 80 or so new, new patients? And do you have confirmation King County is paying for this treatment? There is not a best practice model to draw from. This has been known and stated by Leo Floor and Mayor Sweet almost a year ago in February. You all promised a best-in-class facility. This is the time to make or break that promise. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Detmar Schimmel and followed by Jack Stott, who will be virtual, and Sriram Rajagopalan, also virtual. Welcome. Uh, good evening, Mayor, uh, uh, Sweet. Good evening, Council members. Uh, my name is Dietmar Schimmel. I'm a Houghton resident for 20 years. First of all, thank you for maintaining and keeping the shock banner. I witnessed uh, a crash myself there. So great, effective solution. Thank you. Uh, I'm opposed to the siting of the uh, of the permanent housing project, uh, but I won't go into the reasons for it. They have been mentioned plenty of times on both pro and against. Um, don't think anybody's going to change mind on that one. Uh, I looked over the various draft agreements, and really at this point, they are drafts. They are by far not complete. And actually, again, my focus as well would be more what happens outside of the facility rather than inside the facility. And I urge the council uh, definitely to get a baseline what right now uh, crime incidents or shoplifting and so on, and also what the baseline is for uh, in terms of economics, economic impact, so vacancy rate, uh, or businesses closing down after the facility opens, what is the economic impact for the city of Kirkland? Because, and uh, I would really urge the council to basically reserve a, a get out of jail court essentially. So if things don't work out as, as we are planned and everybody hopes for, that, uh, that Kirkland has the ability to pull out of the agreement and says, okay, we tried our best, we tried to work with the operator, but there are things the operator cannot control. The operator cannot control what happens off, off the premises. So, and that's really something I would urge to, to look into it. As my previous speaker said, the, the uh, provided sample documents are very short. I mean, even the service agreement mentions that it, the code of conduct needs to stipulate what are the uh, 
what kind of uh, repercussions uh, uh, what the repercussions have to be if somebody violates the code of conduct. Nothing is mentioned in those paperwork what the actual actions are. There's nothing in there. Uh, one thing, there's no staff ratio mentioned. It says the operator is supposed to be 24-7 on site. Does it mean one person, two person that are going to be there and taking care of 120 people? I think the council should make sure there is a defined ratio between residents and staff on site at all times. Um, guest policy, weapons not permitted. How is it enforced? Is there going to be metal detectors at the door? Is the staff manually frisking the, the people coming in? Because it's nice that it says on a piece of paper, but people don't necessarily follow the rules. So how is it enforced? Um, yeah, and that's pretty much what I like to point out. I don't think there is, yeah, I will, won't uh, take up any more of your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next speaker is Jack Stott, who is virtual, followed by Sriram Rajagopalan, also virtual. Hello again, this is Jack Stout, joining Welcome you tonight as representative of the Kirkland Senior Council. I want to remind the City Council and the public as well that nearly a year ago, the Kirkland Senior Council submitted a letter to this City Council supporting this program at La Quinta. And we want to affirm that it is important for us to state that again. We recognize that housing within the community is a paramount issue to seniors. It is in many ways because of economic factors, but also health considerations, and also the fact that rising cost and inflation are impacting seniors in our community and making it more likely that because of health issues and economic issues, they themselves may join the homeless community. I want to mention also that as a member of the Holy Spirit Social Justice Committee that supports programs like Sophia Way and the New Bethlehem program, that those projects have made a significant impact on many people, families and women who have been homeless in this community. They are success stories that we should remember. And though it may have been very difficult to implement those programs, they were a partnership of many people in the city and the community around, and they are very successful. One note that I uh, received recently from Sophia Ware shared that some 30% or more of the women in Sophia Ware are in fact seniors, and they're there because of some of the reasons that I mentioned, issues of healthcare and aging and cost burdens. So all of these things affect us as seniors, and seniors make up 31.7% of the Kirkland community, and no doubt the statistic is growing as we age. So I'll just close tonight by saying that I encourage the City Council to continue its hard and difficult task 
to encourage the conclusion of this project and get the La Quinta facility opened as soon as possible. Thank you all and good night. Thank you, Mr. Stout. The next speaker is virtual. It's Sriram Rajagopalan, followed by Judith Jeziolowski, Rex Rempel, and Judith Beto. Welcome. Hi. Um, good evening, uh, Mayor and the City Council. I wanted to uh, put in a strong statement of support for the permanent housing project, the La Quinta Inn that's being converted. Uh, I want to emphasize, like some of the other speakers before, that we want to make this be a low barrier facility somewhere that people can get help, get a roof over their head. Um, this is not a jail. This shouldn't be treated as such. This is a place for people to live. But yes, people who have certain challenges and they need a lot of support. And so I would like the, the city to, there are common sense safety considerations, of course, that we need to be kept in mind. But really the focus is on helping people and helping them become more productive and helping them uh, get to a better place in their life. So that's really what I, you know, I would urge the city to do that. And as we know, the, we have a severe crisis at this point going on with homelessness and behavioral health crisis. And the sooner we get facilities like this operational, the better. This is a drop in the bucket in terms of the need, but it, it is an important as part of it. And so the sooner we move, I'd like to see a lot more urgency in terms of moving forward. I do have a couple pieces of feedback to offer. First, uh, it has been just in terms of communication and transparency, I would say it has been really hard to understand where things are at, to understand you know, when we can expect you know, things to happen, when we can expect things to conclude. It's been really hard. There's no easy way to understand the status right now of the agreement, but I think along these lines, an important part of when you establish a facility like this is for us as the public to have a really good understanding of what is happening in the facility, who is it helping, how many people are being helped, what are the outcomes. And we need to be able to go to something like a dashboard or something that is a public site that we can go and look at it. That's a really important part because that is how we learn about what's happening. We, we build trust within the community. So I would really urge uh, the city council and the, and the city manager to kind of uh, as this facility gets built, built out and you know goes live to really make sure that the outcomes and, and communication and information about what is happening and how well it's operating be really available to anybody in the community. Thank you. And again, I really appreciate the efforts of the city council in, in moving this project forward. And I'm looking forward to this facility going live in as early as possible. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Council, your next four speakers are on site, beginning with Judith Jezielowski, then Rex Rempel, Judith Beto, and Stuart Early. Welcome. Hello, Madam Mayor and council people. I'll just, could I start over here? No, we've got to have you go into the microphone. How about if I go like that way? There we go. That way, so this isn't a we'll Come down to you. Thanks, Dave. Oh, that's good. That's nice. Thank you. This is the first time I've ever spoken in front of any council, so it's about time. Um, and I found out about the meeting about two hours ago, but thought it was pretty important and I should get out here. 
So I'm here to speak in support of the permanent supportive housing at the former La Quinta Inn. I am lucky because I have a home warm and dry on Yarrow Point, which uh, my house is about a mile from the location. So I'm really kind of excited about that. Um, and I'm, I'm proud that, that we as a community are in the process of providing housing for those in our society who are most in need. Um, it'll provide stability and security. And uh, I don't want to be part of the group of people who say, not in my backyard. I say, let's put it in my backyard. I think that would be a great idea because we have the resources here to support that. Um, I appreciate this housing opportunity because the need is really urgent. And I thank you and all the people that have worked so hard to make this a reality um, come to fruition. And I really appreciate it, the time to be here. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Rex Rempel is next, followed by Judith Beto. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, good morning to our Scottish council member and good evening to everyone else. Um, I live and work in Kirkland and live near the proposed facility. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker who has spent most of his career providing behavioral health services to homeless and formerly homeless people in King County. I have also had years of opportunity to supervise the clinicians working in permanent supportive housing projects in King County. And so I have direct information about and evidence of and experience visiting and overseeing services within these facilities. It may surprise some people that know me that I wanna start by acknowledging some of the concerns of some of my neighbors. I can tell you firsthand there will be problems. There will be difficulties. There will be inconveniences caused. And they will happen several times and many times, and things will happen again. Um, and that's a reality because anybody who's lived with a chronic illness knows that recovery from a chronic illness is not linear. Anybody who's lived with a behavioral health condition or supported somebody with a behavioral health condition knows that recovery is not linear. Um, the evening started here with a proclamation speaking to the racial healing that our community needs. And that kind of trauma recovery as a community or trauma recovery as an individual is not easy. It is hard work. It takes time and it is painful and it is full of setbacks. And so I wanna say that permanent supportive housing is an imperfect tool. And I wanna encourage us to remember why we're doing it when these imperfections come up, because they will. Um, first and foremost, permanent supportive housing is an evidence-based life-saving practice. It has been shown to reduce all of the problems associated with chronic homelessness. Secondly, part of being a civil society is simply protecting the vulnerable. We do that in all sorts of ways, small and big. In large ways, I look at what my tax payments are and what they go to. In small ways, I got stuck behind a school bus this morning and a pedestrian crossing the street. Part of what it means to be a society that is civil and livable is to protect vulnerable people. That's part of what it means to be a community. Frankly, I think that's part of the definition of love, which is not a word we use in politics, but we do use in our real lives. And so when we have these difficulties, I want us to remember why we're doing this and to thank ourselves for doing the hard work of making lives livable and safer for people who are vulnerable neighbors. Thank you. Thank you. 
The next speaker is Judith Beto, followed by Stuart Early, and then Ronald Snell, who's virtual. Welcome, Ms. Beto. Thank you. Hi. My name is Judy Beto. I've lived here about 10 years in Kirkland. I'm on the sign committee. I'm a traffic volunteer. I walk through the Lakeview neighborhood. So I feel um, very competent to talk about all the things that we're talking this evening. I share the safety and security concerns, and I'd just like to ask the council when you're thinking about this to think about the planning for increased first responder report. We're going to need first responders. We're already short in many of our areas, and I think that we need to think about this going forward. You can't just hire a policeman or a fireman and put them on the job the next day. We also know on the Kirkland website, there's always a need to get new officers in all different places. So I'm asking you because our firehouse currently on 108th is out of service. So the fire department has to come much farther down to the facility and it won't actually be in operation at the time that this opens. I'd ask you to think about the Kirkland Police Community Service Officers, that they work very hard already. In the summer months, so many people that are not Kirkland residents hit all the parks they're very busy during that time, and this is probably the time when actually the facility will be opening. So I'm thinking that if we are thinking about the code of conduct, it's all the people in our community, not just the people in this facility. We need to be ready to be a first responder for everybody in the city, not just in Lakeview, not just in Houghton, not just in this facility, but think about the increased demand that this facility, as well as our new awareness of code of conduct in the whole city might make a difference. In the historical basis, there's 30 Bellevue. You're probably aware of it. St. Luke's runs it. It's up on Bellevue Way. It's 62 apartments, and about 50% of them are King County residents. Coming from my exercise class during the opening of that facility, many of the owners and the people in that facility, it took about six months for everybody to get into the mode of things. If they left at 10 p.m., they couldn't go back till 8 p.m. On the streets, particularly by the QFC, were a lot of people, and there was a lot of time for first responders to actually have to address that kind of uh, transitional behavior. So I'm asking if there's some way for you to think about advanced planning for this and to possibly think about already uh, making arrangements to have more people on the ground to make all the things that may happen to be a little bit more comfortable for all of us. Thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you, Ms. Beto. Stuart Early is next, followed by Ronald Snell and Jan Young. Good evening. Uh, my name is Stu Early. Thank you for the opportunity to talk uh, with you again. Um, three issues that I think you should address or talk about. The first has to do with performance measures, what really constitutes success. Uh, the draft uh, PSHA lists 12 metrics that you should be receiving. I think some of those are quite good. Some of those deal with the community, some deal with the residents. Um, none of them, however, have goals or target performance levels. Without goals or, or targets, we simply don't know how well we're doing and what improvement opportunities remain to be taken advantage of. Uh, no, no scorecards means no performance orientation and ultimately it means uh, a bureaucratic approach to, uh, to the results. Secondly, there neither length of stay nor rate of return to homeless listed as metrics. I think those are important. Length of stay is, is I think, quite important. 
if you don't have that metric, you, you really don't know whether the facility is, is simply a permanent residence place for people or a temporary shelter for residents who are dealing with their issues and, and, and will be moving into permanent housing offsite. Um, the same thing's true with the rate of, of return to homelessness. The continuing, the continuum of care system-wide performance measures that are referenced in the draft uh, don't really address the, the length of stay as uh, an NA that's, that's shown there in, in the uh, continuum of care system-wide performance measures. So that's, that's hedged a bit. Second issue has to do with this community advisory board. It's really transparency and community involvement. There is no community advisory board. There are opportunities for the community to participate in the development of a code of conduct and to participate in the development of a community relations plan, but there's no ongoing involvement once the facility is up and running and we have these, these two things, the code of conduct and the, and the plan uh, already developed. The good neighbor agreement that you cite as an example, uh, the, the city of Auburn, it's a, it's a good starting point, but it really appears primarily written for the benefit of the businesses, uh, not for the benefit of the community, per se. A citizen advisory board will give the neighbors the opportunity to have direct access to the operator, the, the, uh, how the facility is doing, and be in a position to provide constructive feedback and, and support. Uh, lack of it will, uh, will, will, will undermine the long-term acceptance of the facility. I think the city's role, Jim, is trying to increase the, the, uh, the role that you have. I think one of the ways to do that would have some joint targets and goals for key metrics <coughs> jointly shared by the county, city, and the operator. The question is, are we putting in place like something that will get the homeless off the streets, or are we going to help them get on their feet? Thank is you, it, sir. Your welcome. time Thank is you. up. Thank you. Next speaker is... Ronald Snell, who's virtual, followed by Jan Young, who's also virtual, then Joe McQueen. Welcome, Mr. Snell. Hello. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Uh, Mayor Sweet, members of the council, today I'd like to speak in support of the plan for the supportive housing program at La Quinta Inn. I'm not gonna go into the details of the specific proposal. Others have already done that uh, to a considerable degree. What I did wanna do was share some of my experiences working with the supportive, uh, with the homeless in a supportive environment. And why I think these programs are so important to help people transition uh, out of homelessness. My home church, Bellevue First Congregational Church has long been a member of congregations for the homeless and has ho housed homeless men for many years in a shelter that rotates monthly between uh, 12 churches. What's similar about this program and the program at La Quinta is it has a strong case management program, which helps men find uh, employment. It works to address whatever medical addiction issues they may have, including trauma, and whatever barriers exist to prevent them from living independently. And finally, it works to make, help them make a transition to uh, stable housing. The program has been widely supported and long supported by the church. Uh, members of the church serve, uh, meet with the men, serve them dinner in the evenings. Even our youth group gets involved to serve men, the meals uh, to men. But the men themselves, um, after the meal, clean up them after themselves, 
fix their own breakfast there at the church. And they are housed in the narthex of our church, which is the entrance to the church. And, and they take care to clean up everything before they leave. Um, and during the day, you would not know that our church is a shelter for men in the evening. For almost 20 years, the church has been a member of CFH and has never once had a serious issue that has called anyone's safety into question. Um, so what I want to really make the point is that um, certainly in a program like CFH, where you have a strong case management program, there's a good opportunity to really transform people's lives and allow them to uh, work on issues that they are facing and to make a transition to a more um, stable environment. My experience working with the homeless, they're almost always universally appreciative of all the help that they receive. And so I urge that the council support the proposed program at La Quinta so that others can begin to receive similar support as soon as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Snell. Your next speaker is Jan Young, also virtual, followed by Joe McQueen, Brian Olay, and Alex Zimmerman. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Great. Thank you. This is Jan Young from Kirkland. Um, I fully support the PSH in Kirkland and the city's efforts to hold King County accountable to ensure this project produces a safer outcome for all those impacted. I'd like to maintain and possibly even improve our status as the third most livable city in the USA. Few comments on the information shared by the city and King County. I would encourage any communication agreements rules to the tenants to be offered in multiple non-English languages. I think that should be a requirement with all code of conduct, house rules, guest policy agreements, and under the HTH service agreement. The um, Auburn PSH agreement includes prioritization of space to vets and seniors. I think that both groups should be given priority at Kirkland's PSH as well, but especially seniors. And here's why. The number of seniors 65 plus are expected to double by 2060. Per the American Psychological Association, 2.4 million people over 65 identify as LGBT. According to Genworth's 2021 cost of care survey, Washington is one of the highest cost of care states, even above California and Hawaii. In Seattle area, assisted living median monthly cost is $6,750 or $81,000 a year, and independent living is about $52,500 per year. Medicare and Medicaid does not cover independent living. With the increase in the aging of population in Kirkland, we should also focus on providing affordable senior housing, especially to those who are also veterans and or disabled and or LGBTQIA+. According to a 2014 study by the Equal Rights Center, LGBTQ plus seniors are 48% more likely to face homelessness and poverty because of discrimination. Many live alone and are not able to rely on family support. And then as for the recent murder that took place in a Seattle PSH, I would ask the city to look into the agreement that was in place with the Downtown Emergency Service Center, the operators of the Seattle PSH, to ask them about their policies and how they think they could have prevented this from happening. The resident charged with the murder of another resident was convicted of sexual assault of a child in 2006, which was over 10 years ago and out of state. 
under the current city proposal to enhance criminal background checks, 10 years may not be going back far enough? And does it conflict, possibly conflict with the King County requirement of not allowing residency who are deemed lifetime registered sex offenders? Um, what about applying, searching all national registries and records and not just Washington and local jurisdictions? Protection of the community is important and so is the protection of the residents within the PSH. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ms. Young. The next speaker is Joe McQueen, followed by Brian Olay, Alex Zimmerman, and Carolyn Castle. <coughs> Welcome, Mr. McQueen. Mayor Sweet and council members, thanks so much for the opportunity to speak tonight. Uh, my name is Joseph McQueen. I've lived in Kirkland for seven years, just off of, off of 108. Um, this is so exciting what you're doing uh, to to move forward something that's so desperately needed. Um, I, I want to speak in in just strong support of um, of this uh, housing agreement. Uh, like Ron, uh, I've worked with the homeless at my church. Um, we run a safe parking pro program for folks who live in their automobiles. Uh, these precious brothers and sisters come from all over the place and. Um, we've got we've got seniors who've lost their jobs and lost their housing. We've got folks who've been injured on the job, and their medical bills make it impossible for them to um, pay rent. Uh, people in all kinds of situations, hard situations. Um, and as I stand here and I think about the possibilities, I, get, I actually get excited. Um, I know there's a lot of bureaucracy. Jim Lopez, you're, that was an amazing presentation. Thank you. Uh, the, the, the details matter, right? The details matter. But, but I would echo Ron and Rex and, and Judy that we keep the bigger picture in mind here. I mean, we're, we're, we're coming off the wake of MLK Day. I feel like it would be appropriate to quote a little scripture at all of us, right? To whom much is given, much is required. Right? To whom much is given, much is required. We live in an area of affluence and privilege. I'm a professor at Northwest University, a little liberal arts college. My students, um, they come from a lot of them wealthy backgrounds. Um, Eastside Prep, incredible privilege. What would it look like for us to dig deeper into our moral imaginations, our spiritual imaginations, and ask ourselves, what's required of me because of what I've been given? What does it look like for a handful of Northwest University students to team up with a handful of Eastside Prep students and start offering a tutoring program at the, at the housing agreement, right? I mean, how do we start thinking uh, beyond just, uh, you know, the, the, the safety concerns are real and those need to be addressed, but how do we, how do we expand our moral imaginations? Um, I, I think that this is so exciting. Uh, I'm so thankful, and I, I just I just urge you to 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 work with um, expeditiousness to get us here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. McQueen. The next speaker is Brian Olay, followed by Alex Zimmerman, Carolyn Castle, Brad Davis, and Cindy Drushba. This is Mr. Olay. Okay. Hi, uh, good evening, can you hear me? We can, welcome Mr. Olay. <coughs> uh, good evening and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I'll be brief and I've been a Kirkland resident for about five years. Um, I live in Houghton right now um, and I wanted to quickly talk and ask, make some asks about uh, performance measures, specifically about tracking uh, PSH's impact on neighborhood crime. Um, 
in general, as background, I'm very supportive of housing homeless in general. Um, but as a business analyst by trade, by occupation, I need data and analysis to be convinced at how effective or safe something is. Kind of like a vaccine, and you can make your own personal decisions. But at a broader, to use a crude analogy, like you need to prove it to me. Um, and I think a lot of uh, my neighbors are very similar, are in a similar boat. Um, so background, for several months, I've asked King County various officials for like a crime impact analysis around the surrounding area of existing sites or two B sites. Um, and I haven't received anything. It's, it's been several months. I've even asked for the addresses of PSH sites like today so I can do the analysis myself and still nothing. So I'm, I'm you know, summarized by kind of just asking for help here. Um, for any officials there or any of the council members who like read a bit of analysis or a report on the performance specifically with respect to the impact on crime of current PSH sites, can you please publish that? Because I swear to you, I could not find it and maybe that's on me, but one, can, can you please publish whatever you read and whatever was done already? That would be great. Um, and if we have, you know, if that analysis hasn't been done, like in addition to other performance measures, we should start tracking that because, uh, you know, lots of people have already stated, hey, there's efficacy of the actions on the inside, um, lots of studies on the effectiveness and reducing death rates and so on and so forth. I'm super supportive of that. But on the other side, it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Like, what is the impact of the surrounding area? That's a material and still important aspect that we need to understand. So if we could start tracking that, that that's going to be critical. Um, and at the very least, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't find them. Like, the, the current locations of the PSH sites, can you please publish that so I can pull the data myself? That would be great. And I can share it with a lot of my Houghton neighbors and it would quell lots of concerns moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Your next speaker is Alex Zimmerman, followed by Carolyn Castle, Brad Davis, and Cindy Drushba. Welcome, Mr. Zimmerman. Thank you. Zichail. My dirty damn Nazi Gestapo democracy fascist, a bandita and killer. Yes, exactly. It's exactly who you are. Not personal. All Democrat who control right now. Everything. Mr. Zimmerman, this is a public hearing. Yeah, ab about housing. Specific. Absolutely. I'm, you're absolutely right. In 96, I bring um, housing discrimination on behalf of 500 families in, in, in Bellevue. In, Central Park East Apartment. I, six times evict. Yeah, six eviction have last six months ago. I prosecute three times, yeah. My experience with housing, I think I'm an expert, one only expert from people's side in state Washington, maybe in America. I'm not too much sure about this. Mr. Zimmerman, could you confine your comments to the, the La Quinta Yes, exactly. That's exactly what is I want to speak to you about. I hear what this manager talking. To me, this looks like brainwash masturbation, you know, because 99 percentage, 99, 99, don't understand what's going on. Situation with housing, very simple. You nobody care touch this. It's a problem. It's a problem because we have right now a situation what is Democrat control everything. They spend a billion and billion Mr. dollars. Mr. Zimmerman, this is... Please limit your comments to discussion of the permanent supportive housing 
at La Quinta. Exactly. It's exactly, what is I, exactly. it's exactly what is I doing. Because you cannot separate one from another. You need to understand why you're here. Because you have these rules. So I explained to you, this rule never will be working. Because it's not enough housing. People dying, million people supposed to be helped, nothing happened. Why? Uh, well, I'm a businessman, you know what I mean? So my question, very simple, how we can fix this problem? Huh? Why we come to this situation when everybody have housing? 35 years ago when I come to, to Bellevue, Mr. you know what Zimmerman, it means. I'm going to ask you to sit down. You are not addressing the public hearing appropriately. No, okay. Give me another 10 seconds and I will explain. Everything what is this guy, manager, you're talking about this, and I told you again, this 100% BS. Because Thank I you, have, Mr. Zimmerman. I'm going to ask you to sit down. Now. No, I don't understand. I, I, you don't give me chance to speak about proposition. What is we have about housing? So my opinion straight. This brain wash masturbation. A BS. I'm sorry. <laughs> Your next speaker is Carolyn Castle, followed by Brad Davis, Cindy Drushba, and we have someone with their hands with their hand raised named Lee H. Council member Nixon, thank you for staying up all night <laughs> on vacation. <laughs> um, Caroline Castell, I'm a quarter mile from La Quinta. I've been there since March 72. There's 10 houses. I'm 10 houses away. I've had uh, drug dealings in my driveway. They zip in past the hedging so they're, they're not seen. So I'm concerned, a little bit concerned regarding uh, drugs. Uh, first of all, I couldn't find any limit to the length of stay. I wonder. I wonder how that works. I'm also um, wondering: Do we take care of? Uh, do we have a percentage of the Kirkland residents that we'll take care of? Like we're uh, we're in Kirkland, so I'm hoping that 20 percent. Or I know people are living in their car and they're going to work, and I and I hope those are some of the people that we'll take care of. Okay, I don't know how we'll do that, but. I know they're living in their vans and stuff, um, and so obviously they're paying taxes and working. I really support those people. Um, uh, what about, um, is the big fish going to be a soup kitchen? Does anybody know that? That big fish right next to La Quinta? Are we going to be serving food there? Anybody have a clue about that? Or is that a mystery? We don't know. Um, the people uh, do that aren't so is there a percentage of people that are working and those that are can't work because they're they're having drug and alcohol issues um, do we moderate the the percentages do we look at that how does that work I don't know how they determine that but I don't know whether the city of Kirkland looks at that or not um, I'm guessing that drugs are allowed as long as they're not an issue and the resident manager isn't having any trouble with them I, I don't they're permanent housing and they're in their own units. So I don't know how that works um, with the drugs. I'm, I'm Ms. Castle, can I refer you to our website? Yes, I all read, there were 63 pages. I read it, but it didn't answer those questions clearly. I did read it. There were 63 pages. I, I looked at all the pages and I still had, I, I still had some questions. Um, and so the one, uh, the ones that aren't working, I, I don't know what they do for those eight hours. They have to be out and about during the day. I don't know how that works. And um, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. 
The next speaker is Brad Davis, followed by Cindy Drushba, and we have someone online with their hand raised named Lee H. Uh, my name is Brad Davis. Uh, my brother and I own an apartment building about, I don't know, 300 feet straight down the hill here. It's a gray building. You can go out of your parking lot and, and go right down there. Um, we built it in 1990. It was the smallest, it was the biggest building on the street. All the place was woods. I couldn't live. Nothing was on that street, so times changed pretty rapidly. In fact, one of the reasons we went ahead and built it was you guys were going to downzone the lot, and that changed too. So, uh, But anyway, uh, 255 4th Avenue is, is the address. And uh, uh, <clears throat> soon after, well, not soon after, but you guys had a homeless camp uh, encampment in the uh, church across the street. And it rotated between churches. I never paid much attention to, to, to it until uh, as soon as it opened, we started losing bicycle parts and things. And then when they moved, uh, that, that went down. We also had some problems with people trying to break in the back, the, the back door on it. So I'd go up there and look, and they're, they're casually eating lunch at noontime. So I wasn't real excited about that whole operation. Anyway, um, the first homeless encampment that I encountered was Nicholsville. It was located in Marginal Way South. It was named after the Seattle mayor, uh, Greg Nichols. And I used to take stuff down there. I saw on the, on the news that they, uh, uh, they were soaking wet. And so I take tarps down there, and, uh, uh, and I got to know some of the people, and I talked to them. And what I, what I encountered was some of the people you could help and some of the people you couldn't help. And the ones you couldn't help... Um, they like sitting in their tents and getting, getting high all night, and you weren't going to change that. Uh, what I'm asking for is a change in nomenclature. Um, the word homeless to me is very, very inaccurate. 20% of the people need homes. I'll, I'll kick that up to 30% right now. 30% need homes. You can solve their problems by providing homes. By the way, I used to syndicate Section 8. I've had Section 8 tenants. I've had great Section 8 tenants. I've had lousy Section 8 tenants. But th there also is a group... Um, that, that you can't help, and you're never going to be able to help them. And those are the ones that are, that are uh, uh, basically drug-addicted or mentally ill. And, uh, and those people, you're not going to be able to help no matter what you do. And that's the sad part about it, is I don't think you can help them. Because anymore, after they cook their brains, um, they're done. And I don't know, they're going to have to be taken care of at some other location. Um, Anyway, I'll leave this rest. But I'm like everyone else. I've had my college roommate died of an overdose. I just had a, I just had a, a, a family friend whose son, uh, he drank himself to death. There wasn't a darn thing you could do about it. He was a nice kid. I knew him since he was little. Um, so I think we need to differentiate between homeless people and people that are, that, that are, are not helpable because their drug addiction has gone so far down the path that they can't go. Thank you, Mr. Davis. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do we see Cindy Drushba in the virtual audience? Okay, so we have Lee H. who has their hand raised um, for virtual to speak to the council. We've lost Ms. Drushka. Yes. Uh, City Council members, um, my name is Lee. Uh, about the proposed uh, criminal background screening process, I support City of Kirkland to have a stricter 
process on the background checks. And I oppose to the King County's proposal. If we do think King County's data has richer data or have a, um, some process, we should consider combining the screening process to pose a stricter uh, screening checks. The goal is to prevent to have sex offenders and criminals to get closer to this radius of school um, distance. And uh, I also want to support the earlier request to adding um, restrictions, restrictions on deadly weapons inside this facility. And um, I also want to say for any earlier uh, speakers who mentioned about uh, concerns for having your friends uh, to be housed in this facility, if they are not, they, they don't have criminal history or sex offender history, I don't think that's a concern. So when we are talking about uh, low barrier on this facility, please, please don't lower the barrier on criminal background checks. Don't lower the barrier on sex offender checks and don't lower the barrier on weapon restrictions. This, my, this is my ask to the city council, please consider. Oh, thank you. No one else has signed up. Okay. Um, I believe that was our 20th testimony. At least that's what I have. And so I am going to declare this hearing closed. And with that, I am going to turn to the council and ask if there are any questions, concerns. Madam Mayor, might I suggest a recess uh, before we get into discussion? I think that's a great idea. Thank you. Uh, we normally try to take a 15-minute break when we've been at it for this long, so we're going to do that right now, and we will be back in 15 minutes. Recording stopped. Recording in progress. Okay, we are back in session after a 15 minute break, after a long public hearing. We're at the portion of the meeting where we've, we've, received, <coughs> we've received the public hearing. Uh, we've heard from the public. We've had the report and the update on the process. I invite council to either to have discussion or point staff in, a, in any direction that you wish to do so, given the public comment. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, I always start with thank yous, and so I'm going to start with thank yous again tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you to King County for being such a great partner through this and wanting to partner with the city um, and wanting to partner with the community. I really appreciate that, and that's really shown through that genuine desire to collaborate and partner. Um, so this, we definitely appreciate that. Thank you to um, City of Kirkland staff who's working so hard as well. I know there's so many behind the scenes conversations that you're working so, so hard to, um, to reach an agreement here. And I feel really optimistic and really like, thank you for your presentation tonight. Um, Jim, I really, really appreciate that. Um, 
tonight, you know, I was mostly here to listen, so I don't have extensive comments. Um, I do appreciate, like I mentioned, the negotiation um, process that we've gone through, um, and I feel like we're in, um, we're headed in a really good direction, and I'm thinking particularly of the background checks. Um, you know, I, I support moving forward to finalize the details um, in the direction that it sounds like we're almost there um, with King County on, and so um, I support that, and I support the direction that we're moving to, and it sounds like we're almost, almost, almost there, so thank you. Um, as was said tonight, um, we've heard from the community and we all are quite aware of the urgency of this issue as well. We've all probably, many of us read the Seattle Times article yesterday about how um, more unhoused people died in King County in 2022 than in any other year on record. Um, and I know that was shared tonight, but that just, I think, underscores the urgency of us moving forward. I want us to get to a place of agreement, but I don't want us to get so caught up in that that we don't um, that we lose sight of why we're doing this and that we need to move forward and that there is an urgency um, as some of our community members have shared with us um, on more than one occasion people are dying right now unhoused people are dying today this week this month um, and the, the sooner that we can um, put these services in place and get folks housed the better so um, i want us to do this well and to do this right but i just want to remember that sense of urgency in the very real um, implications of the timeline. So thank you. Thank you. Any further comment? I, I just have a, a couple, Madam Mayor. Thank mm -hmm. you. And thank you, Council Mayor Falcone. Um, I, I want to echo her thanks, and I also want to add to her thanks um, the people that spoke this evening and the, the correspondence that we've received from the community. And I also want to echo strongly Council Member Falcone's comments about urgency. Um, we have been working on this a year. We do need to move forward. Jim, the slide that you presented that explained the timeline and what agreements impact future agreements was super helpful. So um, I, I am also eager to move forward. Uh, we do, did receive correspondence from Eastside Prep today that I assume that we're gonna go through that letter in detail and respond. Um, I do have a couple comments on um, the data that we're going to track, one of the things that I think it's important is, I, well, I want to reflect back, sorry, Mayor, I'm trying to go fast. <laughs> I want to reflect back on one of the comments that we received this, e this evening about um, these, the residents of this community have been through a lot. They are a fragile community who will need a lot of support, that this is not going to be a straightforward path. Um, we know that they're senior citizens, they have chronic health conditions, they have diabetes, liver disease, uh, behavioral health issues. When we track this data, what I want to look at, and, and also someone earlier asked for metrics. This is a population that is going to be very difficult to provide metrics because it's not going to be a straight line when they're in this community. But I do think it's important that when we look at, um, I want to, I want to see what lives have been improved, who has taken job training and received employment. I want to tell, be conscious of the story that we're telling, and I need context because we will have increased 911 calls because this is a fragile population. We know that they have health issues when they come into this residency, so I just want to make sure that that data that we're trying to capture has some context and that we talk the story of how we're improving people's lives and how we're saving people's lives. Um, because 
Councilmember Falcone said it very clearly, people are dying. This is the time that we provide them housing and we help our community members. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, as you all know, I strongly support getting people housed and I want this project to open as soon as possible and to succeed. I also believe the most important function of city government is protecting the safety of the general public. Uh, protecting those who are homeless by getting them housed is certainly part of that, but protecting other people in the community cannot be neglected. Um, I've previously said that checking the Washington Sex Offender Registry is not sufficient to protect public safety. Uh, our residents deserve to have comprehensive criminal background checks performed for people proposed to be placed at the La Quinta site. That check needs to be repeated annu annually or so. And if a resident engages in behavior that would have prevented them from moving into the La Quinta in the first place, then they should be moved to a different PSH facility. And to be clear, they don't need to be evicted. They don't need to be put back on the street. But there are plenty of county permanent supportive housing facilities in less sensitive areas, and they could be moved to one of those. Um, I listened to uh, Jim Lopez's uh, remarks and was very encouraged. It's sounding like maybe the county is agreeing to these comprehensive background checks and doing them on a regular basis and uh, using that uh, uh, as <laughs> Mr. Nixon, we are losing you. But okay, we're not. We are not hearing you, Toby. You might. And your screen is frozen. Do you want to go off camera? <coughs> I think he is too. So is Kathy going to send him a chat? Okay, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And uh, Thank you, Deputy City Manager Lopez, Director Floor. I think we really are converging on an agreement here, and I know that there's been a tremendous amount of work. I'm particularly encouraged, and, and uh, City Attorney Ellers as well. I'm particularly encouraged um, uh, by a couple of things that was in, in the staff report about having example uh, agreements of the Code of Conduct and uh, safety and security plan and the approval of the good neighbor agreement and uh, looking forward to those. When we talk about the screening process, I think we're talking, I think we're converging, but I would like to see a merge of some elements of the county's language and the city's language. I would prefer the city's proposed screening process. It's much more specific on, on the requirements and I think that's a must have. The county's process in section 1B talks about the screening must be performed prior to residence and talks about the annual update. I think we need to incorporate that. In addition, the county's process in 1C and 3 talks about who's selected for the facility. And I think talks gets to some of the points of who's appropriate given the services that are, are, are provided uh, moving forward. And, and I appreciate that, con that, that, that comment. 
Uh, we got the letter from Eastside Prep earlier today that had a lot of details and some suggested uh, comments that we haven't been able to fully digest, specifically for their comment on the code of conduct and some of the changes in the screening process. I'd like to get a staff analysis and recommendation on uh, on those. There's some pieces of it that um, uh, I'd like to incorporate, if we can, on the specific code on page five and six of their letter. Um, but uh, very encouraged by the, the process and uh, appreciate the uh, the public comment that we've re received so far. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon, you're back. Do, well, you're frozen <coughs> again. <laughs> I don't think you are back. Okay. I'm, Kathy, you want to advise him to send his comments electronically? Um, Councilmember Pascal. Oh. I just wanted to uh, comment on Councilmember Nixon, I know his screen is frozen. The, asset, the, the agreements are a lot closer. The counties, what we're talking with the county about right now is not a signed authorized criminal background check. It is a state research of all criminal history in the state of Washington, which you don't need to have a signed authorization for. But it would disclose people who would be in violation of the 880-foot prohibition. That's the distinguishing factor. Just wanted to make that clear. Were you able to hear that, Councilmember Nixon? Uh, some at least. Okay. Did you have any other comments? Uh, I'm not sure where the internet went flaky on me the last time, but uh, unfortunately, uh, it's about 6 a.m. here. I think people are waking up and starting to use their laptops and oh. it's taking up the bandwidth. Um, the uh, uh, the main thing I wanted to say is that if if the background checks are going to be comprehensive, then I'm happy. If they're not, then I'm unhappy, and we'll see how it goes. You're going to be happy. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you, uh, Councilmember Pascal. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I don't I don't have a lot to add. I just do think it's important that. Um, go on the record with some of my thoughts that I heard from um, just based upon what I heard tonight. I thought uh, many, many good comments and questions. I think I came away uh, from the material uh, feeling like the goals really do appear to be aligned between the county and the city and that security and safety continue to be key topics. And it's not just about the school or the community, but it's also about the new residents the facility too, that they have peace of mind that who their neighbors will be. Um, I, I, Jim, you had a great graphic there with the code of conduct, the safety and security plan, the extensive screening process, the good neighbor agreement. You know, those are all contributing to important steps um, with this process. In, in regards to just a few questions, I think they align with some of what I've heard from my colleagues. I am I'm interested in learning more about the county screening process, just a little bit more details, how it actually works. Maybe they could walk 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 us through that, um, either you know, offline or wherever. I'd just like to to learn more about that. Um, and then uh, regarding the the EPS letter, uh, yeah, just really interested in hearing a response to to some of those 
those, those questions and topics, and um, I'll wrap it up by just saying that uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. I do want to, again, thank city and county staff, and then, and, and uh, just as importantly, the community for, for their input. Really do appreciate the time. Thank you. Uh, and, and I will close it up just by saying I was very impressed by, um, by the testimony tonight. Um, I really appreciate people coming, stepping out of their comfort area to share with us. And um, the only other comment I would make is I do also want to see a response to the EPS letter. I think the requests in it were logical. Um, but the most important thing for me is really the urgency of this situation and moving forward as fast as we can. I feel like this is, this is a very significant step in getting us where we want to go. With that, thank you very much, Jim, Darcy, uh, and let's move on. So before we have a motion on the <coughs> consent calendar, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold for uh, audit of the accounts. Thank you, Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $3,671,844.57 and bills in the amount of $3,889,179.84. Thank you. Can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Been moved by Council Member Curtis, seconded by Council Member Falcone to accept the a consent calendar. Any discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. Um, aye. Oops, ordinances. Kathy, please call the roll. Councilmember Nixon. Yes. Councilmember Black. Aye. Councilmember Curtis. Yes. Councilmember Falcone. Yes. Councilmember Pascal. Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Yes. Mayor Sweet. Yes. Motion carries unanimously. Thank you. We are now at our business agenda. The first <coughs> item on our business agenda is the 2023 state legislative agenda or uh, le legislated update. Our first one, city manager. Okay. Thank you, Mayor. I'll just go ahead and introduce uh, our government affairs manager, Diana Hart. We'll give you the overview and then we're happy to answer any questions from the council. Welcome, Diana. Good evening, council. Um, I hope I have a relatively short presentation for you tonight. Um, we're going to start with an overview of where we are in the legislative process and then um, start with that. So we're officially in week two. There is quite a while before we get to our first cutoff, but the legislature has been in full swing with committee meetings, um, full public hearings and executive sessions. Over 800 bills have already been introduced and our subject matter, matter experts have been hard at work reviewing all the city related legislation. We'll have a much better sense of what legislation has legs and we're best to focus our efforts with the passage of the committee cutoffs and house of origin cutoffs next month. In the meantime, we'll continue reviewing, monitoring and sharing feedback on legislation. Dive into our 2023 priorities. Starting with the housing-focused legislation, Mayor Sweet testified virtually in support of Senator Cooter's Senate Bill 5045, which aligns closely with our priority to seek property tax exemptions for ADUs dedicated for um, occupancy by low-income people. Representative Kloba is writing a similar bill for co-sponsor signatures that reflects the work we've done with the King County Assessor's Office over the interim. We anticipate that her version of the bill will be dropped soon. 
and the real estate excise tax or REIT bill is still in the works, but we've heard good progress is being made on its finalization and anticipate that it will be dropped soon as well. This bill has gathered support from a variety of stakeholders, so we're optimistic that it will have some traction this year. As the rest of the priority agenda is a little more general than in years past, there are a lot of bills that can fall into the policy buckets of the priority agenda. Thankfully, our ally organizations and bill sponsors have been great at flagging testimony opportunities or priority legislation as we continue to review all the incoming legislation. Last week, Senate, uh, Councilmember Curtis provided virtual testimony in support of Senate Bill 5120, Senator Dinger's bill to establish a 23-hour crisis relief center in Washington. This um, bill will allow behavioral health providers like Connections to operate in Washington. This morning, Councilmember Black went down to Olympia to testify in support of 1178, Representative Hackney's bill concerning local government authority to regulate firearms. This bill removes the long-standing firearm policy preemption on local governments. And then tomorrow, uh, Councilmember Black will testify virtually on House Bill 1195, Representative Sen's bill to prohibit the open carry of certain weapons in public parks and public hospitals. And then yesterday, Mayor Sweet testified in support of Senate Bill 5171, not on behalf of council, but in support of Lake Washington High School students um, who had Senator Dinger sponsor a bill on their behalf addressing consumer gender discrimination, also known as the pink tax. Our lobbyists, Brian Enslow and Brian McConaughey, have signed in or signing, signed in or signing Kirkland in support of the following um, support item bills I have listed. Under gun safety, we have Senate Bill 5078, which um, is protecting public safety by establishing duties of firearm industry members. Related to housing, we have House Bill 1110, increasing middle housing in areas traditionally dedicated to single family detached housing. We were asked to testify in support of this bill, but the hearing unfortunately overlapped with tonight's council meeting. And then we have uh, House Bill 1149 and its companion 5202, Reducing homelessness in Washington through capital expenditures for programs that address housing and security. This is uh, the governor's request legislation um, that will eventually, if passed, result in a ballot measure to increase about $4 billion um, over the next six years for affordable housing in Washington. And then 5060 requiring the registration of rental and vacant housing units. Under behavioral health, we have House Bill 1134 implementing the 988 Behavioral Health Crisis Response and Suicide Prevention System and 5189, establishing behavioral health support specialists. And then finally, under sustainability, we have 1085, reducing plastic pollution. There's lots of great bills this session so far, lots of bills that could be great with some modifications and a good number of bills that don't align with our values. Things are moving quickly and changing often, so we will miss some opportunities to participate in every piece of legislation that impacts the city, but we'll continue evaluating, tracking, and monitoring legislation to see what grows legs over the next few weeks. To close out, um, if an ally organization, community member, whomever reaches out to you about a bill, please let me know, especially if there's testimony requests associated with them. Um, I can um, especially if they have impacts to our priority agenda, we can route them through the legislative work group in a way that is OPMA compliant and support um, you with testimony writing and hearing signups. And even if it doesn't relate to our agendas, it's still helpful to know um, when you're participating in the legislature. And we can always share subject matter expert feedback if you have it on legislation that you're considering supporting. 
In the packet, you may have noticed a few additional agendas from our ally organizations listed in the support items agenda. Stay tuned as staff work on the best way to capture all these newly approved agendas in a place that is easily accessible to council and the public. Now I have one question before I turn things over to council. Um, our lobbyists flagged a bill for your consideration, House Bill 1135, authorizing impact fee revenues to fund improvements for bicycle and pedestrian facilities. This bill is scheduled for a public hearing tomorrow morning and ally organizations like EWC have requested our support of this bill. Um, our subject matter experts have um, expressed support for this. Do a quick little summary of their feedback, um, which acknowledges that um, Kirkland cannot use impact fees for growth related transportation projects that are not directly associated with a street or road. For example, under existing state law, the city cannot use impact fees for major trail projects along this um, cross Kirkland corridor which would be intended to provide additional person moving capacity for people walking, biking, and rolling for transportation purposes. The proposed bill would benefit Kirkland and other communities around the state that are attempting to build multimodal transportation networks to support development. So that's sort of the first question I have for you, um, and then open up to any questions that you have and turn things over to you for discussion. Thank you, Diana. Um, Councilman Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Diana. So if I understand correctly, because the legislative work group has not talked about HB 1135, you're asking council for permission to sign in pro? Yes. Okay, so I will formally ask council for permission to sign in pro HB 1135? Great. Head nods, yeah. Okay, we got head nods on that, so we're good to go. Um, if I just make, can make a couple comments. Um, even though our legislative agenda is short and sweet, the priorities we've adopted, housing, behavioral health, sustainability, reproductive health care, and guns, <laughs> covers a lot. And there are a lot of bills dropping very quickly. Um, so it's been a little crazy, and right now we're doing the triage method on bills. Um, so be patient with us because it, we've covered everything. And I keep reminding legislative work group and I'll remind council, it's a long session. We don't want to testify on every bill from the go. We want to use our influence when it's needed and important. Um, also, I just want to echo uh, what Diana said. Uh, we're all out and about. If you do get a request for testifying, please send it through Diana. It really helps our process to know what kind of requests are coming in. And I know that everyone is very interested in HB 1110, and it was unfortunate that it was heard today at 4 o'clock, but we did sign in pro, and we will track that bill closely. Uh, to the gentleman who mentioned HB 1433 this evening, that bill dropped today. It will look at it with legislative work group, uh, group, work group um, and uh, I suspect since it's a sustainability bill, once it goes to our subject matter experts, we can support it. And um, Diana and I haven't had a chance to talk about this today, but I'm hoping city manager communicated it. But one of the things that city manager and I talked about, instead of including the report in the packet, we will include a link instead because as you guys know, by the time you get the report, it's changed drastically, so we'll we'll look at that online, and then I will respond to Deputy Mayor when it comes up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Any further discussion, Deputy Mayor Arnold? Thank you, Madam Mayor. I have uh, two quick questions. 
One is there are a couple of bills that were recommended by the work group to oppose. One of them is HB uh, 1026, uh, sponsored by our own legislator, uh, Representative Wallen. Another was a bill that was sponsored by Representative Dewar. We've generally been very careful in opposition. Can you talk a little bit about what we're doing when we talk about opposing in, in these particular bills? Diana, you want to respond or you want me to go first? You can take the first stab at it. Okay. So um, the opposition on 1110 and Doer's Bill 10, oh, I've got them backwards, yeah. 1026 and 1054. Is that right, Deputy Mayor? Um, they were written as opposed by our subject matter experts, count, uh, staff, lake, leg, bleh, what time is it? 1020. Legislative work group. Uh, has asked our lobbyists to go back to the prime sponsor and give her our feedback. We have not taken action in writing in opposition or anything else. We're get, providing her feedback and hope that we can move forward to change the staff recommendation on those bills. Great. Thank you. Secondly, uh, two specific bills that I would like to ask the work group to reconsider. HB 1054 prohibits occupancy limits on HOA agreements. There was uh, attorney's office uh, analysis that said, not sure it was city's business, but since then the planning department has come in with a recommendation in, the, in support. And I think this would allow us to make sure that when we allow middle housing that in the city through our own zoning regulations, we don't have homeowners associations that prohibit it. Secondly, under 5058, this is exempting multifamily or less from 12 units from the condo dispute resolution code. I've talked to the planning director about this, and Adam has said his analysis that talked about exempting some building code may have been incorrect. I'd like to have the work group take a look at that, because if it's condo liability code, that's much more complicated than building code. Thank you. I agree. Thank you for bringing those up. Okay. Is that it? Diana, do you have a slide or anything? That's all I have. Okay. And I think you're you're good to go. This takes us to our next agenda item, the Eastside Climate Partnership Interlocal Agreement. In my council calls, I got the sense that there was general consensus on this. So I'm just going to ask if if we could skip the report and simply move to any questions or concerns that the council might have. And maybe I'll take a motion. <laughs> so moved. Second. <laughs> Moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Curtis to adopt Resolution 5569, approving part participation by the city in an Eastside Climate Partnership interlocal agreement with the cities of Bellevue, Issaquah, Mercer Island, and Redmond, and authorizing the city manager to execute said agreement on behalf of the city of Kirkland. Thank you very much. Uh, and to vote. To vote. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of rushing this group. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimous. No. No, it does not. Oh, sorry. I voted no. Sorry, Toby. <clears throat> okay. Motion carries uh, six to one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that takes us to item C, the code update to address compost procurement requirements. Similarly, I didn't get any feedback from anyone with concerns about this process. Does anybody on the council have any questions about this? And concerns? Then could I ask for a motion? So moved. 
Moved by Councilmember Pasco. Second. Seconded by Councilmember Falcone to adopt Ordinance 4841. Any discussion? Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Nixon. Can you nod? Or yes. Okay. <laughs> Councilmember Black. Yes. Councilmember Curtis. Yes. Councilmember Falcone. Yes. Councilmember Pasco. Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Yes. Mayor Sweet. Yes. Motion or ordinance passes unanim unanimously. <clears throat> um, that takes us to ordinance 4841. Um, ordinance 4841 is back to us as the result of revisions. Am I in the wrong place? Yeah. Well, that's the one you just uh, adopted, Madam Mayor. You're right. <clears throat> no, we're on to D. What do I do with my glasses? Oh, here. <laughs> 5572. Okay. Resolution, Resolution 5572, uh, the flag policy final review. Council has seen this document a couple of times. I wonder if there are any questions or if the staff have adequately updated it to the ability to pass it. Take a resolution or I'll take a motion. So moved. Second. Moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Any discussion? Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you. I'll keep this brief. I just want to say I really appreciated the memo. I felt like this was particularly like really helpful to follow council feedback and how each one was addressed. So thank you to city staff for that really clear uh, memo. I also appreciate that we're um, the promise to come back at future meetings for the um, cultural and religious observance calendar and also. The, was it City Council coin? Am I saying mm -hmm. that right? Okay. Um, and also just want to remind us that in our policies, I think we said that we would come back every two years, but in even years. So I would anticipate that the council in 2024 would take a look at this proclamation list at that point as well. And I was also curious when I was reading through if there was a list of, uh, I understand that there could be like a huge universe of potential proclamations that we could look at that would align with our values and that staff had to use some discretion on that. And so if there is such a list of ones that didn't make the cut, um, I would love to see that. Um, if not, I understand, but that would be really helpful just in considerations over the next year, moving into next year. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis? Oh, you didn't have? Question is on the motion to approve resolution 5572, amending section 6.01 of the Kirkland City Council policies and procedures related to proclamations and commendations. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thumbs up from Toby. Okay. All right. Do we have to do the proclamation schedule separately? Yeah, it's a separate. Okay, then I need a motion to approve the uh, proclamation schedule. So moved. Moved by Councilmember Falcone. Second. Seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Is there any discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Uh, opposed? Motion carries unanimously. And then there's ordinance 4837 with regard to the banner code and banner program updates. Can I get a motion? So moved. Second. <laughs> Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. Any discussion? Deputy Mayor Arnold. 
Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I know there's been some email on this topic, but I'd like to ask the city manager about the uh, banner on the truck eating bridge and how that's going to be handled. Yeah, thank you. So the uh, truck eating bridge banner, um, the way I'm proposing to resolve that issue is actually declaring it as a city banner, which then it doesn't, this, these regulations don't apply. Well, I've communicated that in general to the people who produced it. We haven't like nailed that down, but I'm suspecting that would be fine with them because it would allow the banners to stay up. The city would then be responsible for it. So if you know, tethers or something broke, we would fix those. And then I think we'll be coming back to the council with longer term options about what might replace the banners. We've talked in the past about murals and other things. So, but, but in the short term, the Trucking Bridge banner will remain um, as a city banner and, and therefore doesn't have to be in these permit and fee processes. Happy to answer any questions. Any further questions? Okay, the question is on the motion to move ordinance 4837, moved by council member Falcone, seconded by council member Curtis. Um, clerk, you want to call the roll? Council member Nixon? Yes. Council member Black? Yes. Council member Curtis? Yes. Council member Falcone? Yes. Council member Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. The next ordinance is 4838. So moved. Moved by Councilmember Falcone. Second. Seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Any discussion? Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, Councilmember Falcone and I are just going to keep that role for the rest of the <laughs> evening. Um, so I had a question about approved organizations, and, I and you don't need to give me that definition. I just want assurance that we're not just talking about the little leagues as potential uh, opportunities to take advantage of this. We're talking about lacrosse and rugby that may play, take place on 132nd. So it's all sports organizations at all sports fields, correct? Yes, that was the intent. Including beach volleyball at Juanita Beach? Mm -hmm. <laughs> any, the way I've written it so far, any organization providing youth sports in Kirkland would be eligible for it. We currently, have. it's limited to selected fields. So it wouldn't, and one field that is not included currently is the artificial turf field at 132nd. It's the, the grass baseball field was the one that was referenced. Um, and part of that's just so we can get, I, I wanted to limit it to start to get a feel for it. And so we don't have banners littering every single fence in the city. Hmm. Well, I think it would be interesting to discuss um, using 132nd also, but I don't want to slow down this ordinance, so we can discuss that later. The ordinance didn't restrict that, I don't believe so. Great, um, thank you. Uh, Councilmember Black. Uh, uh, Councilmember Curtis discussed the field policy, and that was thank what you. I wanted to ask about. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I echo Councilmember Curtis's comments on that, and. Um, also, just note that I saw in there in the memo, I believe, that they're, we're going to be re-examining this. This is kind of the beginning, and at some point, I don't know when that point will be, but we'll look at how it's doing and maybe expand it or contract it or whatever we feel is necessary. So I, I'm hoping we will have that discussion um, in the somewhat near future. I just wanted to thank um, Jerry and Kelly from the Kirkland National Little League Board for raising this to our attention. Um, they brought it to my attention a few months ago and was able to, and um, also brought it to staff's attention um, to work through this. And I think it's just a really good example of advocacy in the community um, to, um, to, for the city to take action and fix something that was not um, 
not currently fair and equal throughout the city. So thank you staff for being so responsive um, and for giving this quick win to the community. I'm looking forward to seeing it, how it plays out. I think it will, you know, per the comments that we heard earlier tonight, could really go a long way towards making um, youth sports more affordable and accessible to more children and youth in our community. So I'm really excited for that opportunity. And I do think um, there's good potential here to also grow the program per Councilmember Curtis's comments as well. So thank you, staff. Thank you, uh, Jerry and Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I agree with my, my colleague. I, I do want to say that um, I really appreciate how this athletic field advertising program came together so quickly. Um, it was kind of the first that I'd, I'd seen. I'd seen it. What I understand, though, is that um, staff can make changes to this administratively. <clears throat> they do not need to come back through us on any changes to the program. So if we expressly want to have input on that, we have to request that to come back to us, right? So I just want to make that clear. So I, what I'm hearing is that you want it to come back. So at some point, okay. I'm happy to provide a report. I think the best time to do that would be at the end of this first year before we open it up for the following year. That um, works. So okay. we'll Thank put that on our calendar for sometime this fall. Okay. If there's no further discussion, the question is on the or the question is on the motion to approve ordinance forty eight thirty-eight. Um, moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Yes. Councilmember Black? Yes. Councilmember Curtis? Yes. Councilmember Falcone? Yes. Councilmember Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. This takes us to item number 10 reports, City Council, Regional, and Committee reports. Councilmember Nixon? You want to try? No. Okay. No. All right, thank you. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I have nothing to report. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Um, I'm going to be a broken record, but I just want to rave about PFEC again. We had a great meeting. Um, they got their cards about the pros and cons or the different potential ballot e elements. We told them they could talk about it for an hour, just talk amongst themselves, and then they wanted more information. So. Mm -hmm. Can't win. They're, I know they're highly engaged. Um, next meeting, OPSIS is coming back with the feasibility study for options for the Halton Parker Ride and North Community Center. The food has been absolutely delicious, and in order to remove barriers to attendance, we are providing childcare. We haven't talked about that, but I knew oh, I knew that Councilmember Falcone would be very pleased with that. So I have to say again, I am grateful for PFAC's um, participation. I have two LRM requests. Um, I would like to request an analysis of creating in collaboration with the Cultural Arts Commission a truck eating bridge mural on the CKC. Second. So that takes a motion and a second. Yeah. Okay. So I so I'm making that motion. Second. Moved and seconded. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Thank you. My second one is also to do an LRM to work with the Cultural Arts Commission on creating public art for a pride crosswalk in time for June. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black. Uh, any discussion? Uh, Councilmember Falcone. 
Thank you. I would love consideration of that in potential different locations and maybe doing more than one crosswalk. Um, I, we recently had a fantastic tour of the, um, the new um, Friends of Youth facility um, in Willows Road. I think that would be one potential opportunity there as they're requesting a crosswalk. So I'd like um, for us to consider that. I'd also, um, that's one potential because I really would love to see it near where youth congregate, whether that be near a school, near, um, you know, future KTAB, uh, or um, potentially near um, a Friends of Youth facility. As, as And other potential options as well. I'm not wanting to limit to that, but I would like to see options for that. Council Member Pascal. So if we're gonna look into this or have staff, could 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 Public Works also just weigh in on just um, policies and procedures with painting of crosswalks and because there's other there's other kind of forms of art too that could be applicable to the crosswalks and just want I don't want it so so narrow, I, I think it is it's actually a topic that's good to kind of discuss more broadly as well. You're talking about the sidewalks or the- I'm talking about pavement art, yeah, okay. both intersection and crosswalk, that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. So you want to broad, broaden yes. that? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, that sounds good. And I was gonna add, um, particularly Council Member Falcone, I am meeting with Eastside Pride later this week to talk about uh, their ideas and options. Okay, the question is on the motion to, oh, sorry, Council Member Nixon. Thank you, Hope. hopefully the audio is working. Um, I support the, the investigation, so would, would support the LRM. I'm, I have concerns about uh, safety issues, driver distraction, those kind of things, anytime we do something non-standard having to do with roadways. And so I would hope that uh, Public Works would be able to give us a robust report on the data um, surrounding uh, these uh, types of non-standard crosswalks um, and what the experiences have been elsewhere. Um, I know that doesn't happen during the LRM preparation, uh, but I would like for the response uh, or to, for the LRM to include an estimate of the time taken to do a thorough analysis of that. Thank you. Thank you. The question is on the motion to uh, create an LRM for uh, potential, potential pride, pride crosswalk, crosswalk and, and other state mural art. Got it. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Motion carries. Uh, Council Mayor Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, like I mentioned a moment ago, um, Mayor Sweet and Deputy Mayor Arnold and I had a fantastic tour of the, um, the new Friends of Youth building um, over there on Willows Road. I really appreciate all the work that they're doing and their partnership with the city of Kirkland. And like I said, I think there are, are fantastic opportunities there, potentially for a pride cross, crosswalk. Um, uh, there are some safety things that we discussed, um, and there's also, I think, a fantastic opportunity for a community art mural there as well on their buildings. So I'm not doing a for formal LRM on that, but just saying that publicly, I would love for us to discuss that and discuss um, if that's potentially a good a good space there to do that. Um, had a fantastic, um, my first SCA board meeting and uh, retreat on Friday in Enumclaw. Uh, you know, I love the regional work that SCA does, but I'm also 
um, so kind of selfishly really love meeting new people and hearing different people's perspectives. So it was really fun. I knew some of the, the folks in the room, but to meet some new, some new um, folks as well. So really excited about um, this year and all the work ahead um, with SCA. Um, looking forward uh, to things that are coming up in the next few weeks. Won't list them all, but I'm excited that the uh, Finhill Neighborhood Alliance is coming back to in-person meetings. So plan to be attending that meeting later this week. Um, looking forward to the firefighter graduation and the Fire Station 24 open house, among many other um, great things that are happening out in the community in the coming weeks. I also just wanted to take a moment to kind of reflect on some of the work that we've done tonight. I think there's been some really beautiful stories around community members advocating for something in their community and getting some some quick wins with the city, right? So kudos to city staff for being so responsive to community concerns. I'm thinking about Snyder's Dog Park. I'm thinking about the Little League sponsorship opportunities and the truck eating bridge, right? These are things that um, I think is just so beautiful about local government and about how I hope that we continue to be accessible and that folks feel welcome to come to council members or staff with concerns that they have. We can't always have those quick wins. Sometimes things take a really long time to get things done. Um, but it feels really good and I'm really happy for um, our community. So thank you to everyone in the community for advocating for yourselves and for your neighbors. Uh, keep it coming. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you. Just a couple quick updates. So I think you all know that I've been on the Active Transportation Safety Council for three years and we're having our first in-person meeting since I've been on the council um, tomorrow, early in Olympia. So. And then, uh, <laughs> and then it will be our first regional transit committee meeting tomorrow afternoon in Seattle. Um, and uh, and I had an opportunity to meet with uh, King County Council Member uh, Perry, uh, who's chairing that uh, committee, and uh, I'll be uh, vice chair. And so, just had a really good discussion, and we have a good work program coming up this year. So, excited about that. That's it. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I had the opportunity to speak with a group of students at the Evans School with County Councilmember Balducci and uh, Mayor Okerlander, uh, and it was great to talk to these um, uh, students about council staff relationships, and uh, Amy talked about the challenges of a small city, Claudia talked about the divisions uh, on the King County Council, often it ended up Kirkland being the example of a very high-functioning city and a high-functioning council. I was very proud to share our story. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I don't have much to add. Um, I think you're getting reports from Jenna from Miswak and from John for Cascade Water Alliance. Um, but I did have a meeting, or I do have a meeting scheduled with Claudia Balducci, who is the incoming chair of the Regional Water Quality Committee. Um, she has committed in person with Kurt and I, she has committed that she is going to take a serious approach to her chairmanship of Regional Water Quality Committee. And in advance of that, uh, Lloyd Warren from Bellevue and I are sitting down with her to kind of review everything that we've been talking about over the course of the last, what, four years. So I'm excited about that. And I believe, City Manager, this turns us over to you. So we have three quick items, but I do have one slide for the first one, which is the draft retreat agenda. So you also got an email, but I know that, um, I don't know if Councilor Nixon had a chance to look at that yet, but um, Deputy City Manager Goldberg is gonna just put the slide up real quick. We have as a draft, this is a, as she's 
getting that slide up, um, the culmination of the conversations she had with each of you individually and also some conversations I had, and we have a general concept of the topics for the retreat, and we're looking for council feedback on this. Um, if there's things you don't want on there or there's things that you we missed, um, uh, we're looking for initial feedback, and then after tonight, we can also you can also send us additional questions and comments. I'll have to share it first. And then several of you had asked <clears throat> what other topics came up, and so the sheet that was emailed to you um, by Beth has a section that says basically other topics that other members highlighted, but that either even when they brought them up said maybe this isn't a retreat topic. Um, but two things to note, uh, since it came up in council conversation, was the council coin or distinguished service award criteria discussion. We thought that would be a good discussion for the uh, retreat. Um, and then as well, the cultural calendar is also suggested for the retreat, just because that, that, that came up as part of the proclamation discussion. But I'll just go ahead and turn it back over to Beth. I realized I couldn't see half of you. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I emailed this out to you. I'm going to go through this very quickly because I know it's late and everyone is tired. So uh, based on the feedback uh, and what I heard from all of you, city manager uh, Triplett and I had a discussion, and this is what we would uh, like to propose for your consideration for the February 3rd retreat. Um, the sequence could be shifted around and happy to swap things in and out as, as council desires. But um, high level topics, um, we thought it would be good to do an economic update. Um, this is another year of things just being a little topsy-turvy, so thought it would be good to check in with that. As uh, City Manager Triplett said, uh, Distinguished Service Awards, a discussion about that. Um, a number of you mentioned council policies and procedures, um, and uh, the three that we thought we would flag for this discussion, although uh, there were many options um, shared with me, is social media policy, process for making council internal external committee assignments, and uh, the cultural calendar. Um, also heard from many of you a desire to show more progress on the sustainability master plan um, while still keeping with uh, finish what we've started, but are there small things that we could be doing now or do we want to set um, goals for the for the next uh, for the mid buy update. Uh, community outreach and engagement was another topic that came up from a number of you um, in a variety of different ways. Um, first of which is external communication, uh, who speaks on behalf of the city on social media, um, response to Q alerts, our Kirkland uh, requests. And then uh, related to that um, is, could there be a system to improve uh, coordination about status of responses? Um, got some feedback that it's hard to know sometimes who's responding, sometimes people will start doing work when someone else was, was already starting on that. Um, so is there a way we can have a system to imp improve kind of the, the communications around that? Uh, stronger connections with uh, boards and commissions was another item that came up. And then um, an interest in having more council participation at events. So this would not be just attending events, but are there more opportunities to interact? 
um, along the lines of um, the cocoa with the council that you all did um, this past December for the first time in a couple of years, thanks to um, the pandemic. Um, uh, also had uh, some uh, comment about, um, are there things we could do to make council meetings more efficient um, and piggybacking on uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold's comments that um, the city of Kirkland, the Kirkland City Council is a model of a well-functioning uh, uh, city council. You all read the packets. Um, do we need a rehashing of the packets or is there a way that we can categorize presentations of this is more routine can have something really succinct or is there something that the public would benefit from hearing in more detail, in which case it might be a, 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 a more lengthy presentation. Um, and then related to that, you know, uh, is, is it time to um, examine and review the uh, purpose and structure of council reports all again with an eye towards um, meeting efficiency and um, not 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 staying too late um and um and then finally um houghton village and houghton park and ride we thought um it would be good to give you all a status update on where that all stands and uh potentially an uh, early conversation about how to frame the questions that we would be posing to the community about um, the development of uh, particularly Houghton Village, but also there's an interest in the Houghton Park and Ride. So that's what we are offering. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of items. We'll adjust the time of the retreat based on the feedback we get from all of you. Thank you, Beth. Any questions? Councilmember Curtis. Um, thank you, Beth. And I know it was hard taking all of our input and trying to fit it all into a day. So economic update, can we include in that economic development? I'm not clear what we're going to be talking about for economic update. So the idea behind it, and City Manager Triplett may want to weigh in as well, is to hear from financial planning about uh, the state of, you know, revenues and um, things that we're watching. Um, and we don't want to hold that, because don't we usually discuss that in our May retreat? We do, just that things, we just thought it might be helpful, but we don't have to. Um, one thing to note is that, you know, you also have your other opportunities, special presentations or study sessions and things as well. But given the um, investments you all made in the budget process, we thought this could be something you'd be interested in as a, as a financial check-in, but it doesn't have to be at the retreat. Okay, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just curious. If we wait until May, could we actually get an economic forecast report? We could, yeah, because the, the county and the state will have theirs as well, so. So we're totally fine with that. We just wanted to put it out there. I'm fine with leaving it. it keep it short fine. and sweet. And yeah. then, okay. My other question is on community outreach and engagement. I wonder if we could add and retention because one of the things I talked about was continuing to expand and retain people who provide us input. I don't know if council would be interested in talking about that. I see a puzzled look on Council Mayor Pascal's face. Um, one of the things I've talked about is we had great engagement in the early days of station area plan, and then we lost those voices as we went through the process. I'm just, I'd love to brainstorm on how we keep people involved. And why, you know, what are we doing wrong that they're not? So, thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal? 
Just a couple comments. Um, just kind of going off of how efficient we are as a council. I seem to remember last retreat, we talked about social media policy. So I'm kind of curious, um, I guess we didn't resolve it. And so there's more to talk about is what I'm gathering. Okay. All right. Thank you. My position is the same. I don't do it. Councilmember <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I agree with Councilmember Curtis's addition. This is something that's been on my mind, even about like, like I mentioned earlier, some of the community engagement we've gotten around some of issues like the dog park, right? And we've gotten some fantastic public engagement, right? And like, how I'm thinking through like, how can we keep those folks engaged, right? And help continue that relationship um, because there's just so much value in um, the passion and um, the, the caring for community and, and engagement with the city government that folks have when they come um, address us on, on a single issue that oftentimes can carry over into other things as well. So I'd love to really um, um, seek those opportunities and track those opportunities and make sure that we're following up with folks. Um, some of the items on here I think will be more fruitful if we have some research done ahead of time. So is it safe to assume that we'd have some research from staff? I'm thinking of like examples of other social, you know, city social media policies and process for making council um, internal external committee assignments. Um, I know the cultural calendar, we already have an example from another city, but um, is it fair to say that we would have a, like a, some level of stuff yeah, that was the research in advance today is that, you know, there'd be a memo which each, which each of these topics and, and what we do know and can know between now and, and third. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. As a starting point. Okay, where are we? Anything else? I don't remember where we are. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and close this then, and then if you have additional thoughts or questions, you can email us, um, and then we'll turn this into a time allocation, which we'll send back out to council, but obviously you're not meeting again until the 3rd, so you can give us feedback on that as well. Okay, thank you. Hey. Uh, so then the, the next up is the uh, GMPC letter. Uh, this is an um, you may not need a presentation again. I think you had a subcommittee that talked about it and you've all seen the updated letter. So just I guess if you have any questions or we're just looking for a motion to authorize the mayor to sign the, the letter. Unless there's I'm questions or comments. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, first I want to thank Adam for writing the letter and for Deputy Mayor Arnold and Councilmember Falcone to sit in a subgroup with me uh, to finish the letter. Our goal was to make it collaborative yet urgent tone that suggests next steps. I think we accomplished that. Um, just as an FYI, Councilmember Falcone and I reached out to Barrett Brian Perry at SCA to let him know the letter was coming and to request his support in setting up a dual caucus meeting with SCA caucuses of GMPC and AHC, um, which he is on board with. I think he's waiting to receive the letter to do that. Uh, my preference was to do it in person, so I've volunteered Kirkland as the site, and so hopefully that will happen soon. So I would appreciate your support on sending this letter, and I'm making a motion for council to approve this letter to go to GMPC. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, second by Councilmember Falcone. Any further discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Motion carries unanimously. And then our final topic is the uh, LRM update on the Signers Corner pop-up dog park options. 
um, and then a little bit on the potential for Taylor Fields as well. But here to give that is Lynn Zwagstra, our Parks and Community Services Director. This council has questions or direction. Hi, good evening, City Council. Good to see you again. Uh, I didn't put together a presentation this evening. Hopefully it's a relatively uh, straightforward subject. Um, there are a couple options on the table for reinstalling the, the off-leash dog park at Snyder's Corner. Um, and one could be done essentially immediately. It, it's putting the temporary fencing back up and uh, not having parking. The second one is a little more medium term with um, having some temporary parking based upon uh, like a mesh uh, grass system. And the third one is more of a long-term option and that's uh, going ahead and, and moving into the master plan uh, for the Snyder's Corner Dog Park. Um, so those are all options on the table and I would be happy to answer any questions that you might have on those. Councilmember Pascal. <coughs> well, yeah, I'll get things kicked off here, but uh, it's been pretty amazing to see the response from the community. Many of, some of them are, are here uh, this late evening and I know others are watching. I've been, I really appreciate your, your involvement and your input um, and your tenacity on this subject. Um, and then staff, you know, really kind of taking this to heart and looking at, at options and coming up with a, I think a really good list of, and when I look at, when I look at the options, I don't necessarily see them as options. I see them as an implementation steps in my mind. Um, one, you implement, you reopen it right away. Um, two, you look at how to keep it open on interim basis year round. And then three, you start planning for that future um, essentially permanent solution. And to me, that's how I'm looking at it. Um, is there, is there, is it, I guess I'd ask Lynn, is there, is there a reason why I shouldn't be looking at it that way? Uh, no, I think you're correct, Council Member Pasco. Uh, these, these are ideas. It wasn't meant to be a fully, um, fully developed pro proposal since it's an LRM. So there are many things that would likely need to be looked into over time. Um, the temporary one being the easiest with um, the least amount of steps to, to implement that. If I could just add um, one thing on the permanent, uh, you know, doing the master plan, the permanent option, I guess I would say that in that process, we'll also probably have other suggestions for use of the park in addition to the dog park. So there'll be in that master planning process, we'll be also be looking at how else the rest of the property might be used. But in terms of the first two, I think absolutely yeah. they go together, do the well, first the, one now, and then they... In my understanding with master planning processes in the past is that it wouldn't get started right away anyways. No. It would be something that'd have to be programmed in. Correct. And, right. and uh, staff assigned, and I mean, right. I mean, it might not even get going until a year or two from right. now um, in terms of master planning. So I, I, that, that schedule is still up to or decision, right, and staff to get back. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why that's why I'd, I'd be fully supportive of looking into that because we'd have to kind of approve that anyways at, right. at some later point, schedule, budget, all that. Um, but I'd like that to, to con continue on and, and at least be, um, uh, have an option to come back to us at some point on that. So I, I don't know, I mean, I, can, I, can I suggest a, uh, a motion and then we discuss it or you guys want more questions? Want to talk about it? Okay. Oh, okay, I got a, quite a line now. Um, why don't you hold off on the motion and we'll go to Deputy Mayor Arnold. 
Thank you, Madam Mayor. I would support the phased approach of, of looking at how we can uh, reopen a pop-up dog park as soon as possible and then look at parking and then finally the master plan. Lynn, in the, um, uh, the memo, it mentioned the option two as um, midterm. Do you have an idea, can you speak of an idea of how long that process would, would take and is there any issue with keeping the dog park open uh, in an option one format while option two moves forward? Uh, yes, I believe that the dog park could stay op open while option two moves forward because it would be slightly Hmm. Sorry, that muted again somehow. <laughs> um, it would be slightly different um, spaces in, in the park, so they could be going forward concurrently. Um, we believe that we have enough information to say that option two is a strong viable option and that it shouldn't be an extended process of, of permitting and review. Um, so really what would take the longest amount of time is, is installation for that. And do you have a time frame, a ballpark time frame of how long that might take? We think it could be done uh, prior to the heavy winter rains next year, this year, 2023. Uh, Councilmember Curtis, sorry. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So I'm sorry, Lynn, because what I was thinking was um, that we go straight to option two, but without the parking, just so that we're at a larger play area, as opposed, is that an option? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, because it, it makes sense to me to just go straight towards the 15,000 square feet with double gates um, and then postpone the parking until a later date. So that's, that's Councilor Pascal. that's why I wasn't eager for a motion yet, so I want to put that on the table. Um, and then I have a couple questions. Thank you for being here. I'm now going to bring my dog to, <laughs> to council meetings. So I think we should all do that. Um, so uh, the community has talked about wanting to help. So I would like to suggest that we create a Snyder's Corner user group similar to our ball field user group. So I would like you to look at um, what kind of tasks they can do. Um, they have talked about fundraising, so I would like a conversation between the residents um, that are interested in the dog park with parks to talk about a user group and raising funds to help offset some of the costs for this, especially since it's a short-term thing. Um, Council, the Snyder's Corner Master Plan is one of the operational elements that we're looking at for the ballot measure. And a note to you guys, when we go into the master plan, you will have to advocate for your dog park to remain because be people, I, I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> so um, so let's talk about a user group uh, with the residents. And um, while I have the floor, uh, Taylor Fields, I appreciate the suggestion to look at Taylor Fields and I appreciate staff looking at it and the young woman who spoke today about it being um, an uncomfortable space to be in by yourself. I totally understand that. The, the, the benefit of Snyder's Corner is it's very visible and very accessible. But I am unclear. Uh, three of us went in November and cleaned up 360 pounds of dog poop. And what I'm not clear on is who is responsible to maintain that property. 
whether it's K-A-L-L or King County. My reading is that it's K-A-L-L because it was in the center of the ball fields, but my point is the maintenance of that property is not happening during the off season and it should be happening. So um, I'm requesting parks to follow up on that to find out who's supposed to be responsible and what we can do to enforce that um, cleanliness. And I understand that the contract with KALL is up for uh, re-signing in, two, right. yeah, in 2023 and the, the maintenance of the park really needs to be dealt with when that contract's revisited. Thank you. Okay, Councilmember Black. Well, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so I wanted to make a comment, and I had a question, uh, which uh, Councilmember Curtis did touch on. And now, and and then I did want to respond to Councilmember Curtis's uh, last comment about Taylor Fields too. So, uh, first of all, I just really want to thank the staff for um, the responsiveness on this issue um, and taking all the feedback from all the members of the council and the community and coming up with a plan uh, that's responsive. I just really, really appreciate the creativity, and that's the city manager's office and the parks department. Um, just super impressed, so thank you for that. Um, Councilmember Kurz mentioned the double gate. We've heard a lot about uh, from our uh, uh, from the public about having a double gate. I just wanted to actually ask the question of Lynn. Is there any, uh, or rather, uh, Director Zwakstra, is there any reason that, do you see any challenges with providing double gate at the no, no problem at all. We can install the double gate. Okay. And then um, just, I, I have a little bit of a different take than Councilmember Curtis on Taylor Fields and the ability of Kirkland American Little League to maintain the field during the off season. Um, I'm really wondering whether that's a reasonable request um, of them. Um, although they do maintain those playing fields um, to ask them to, uh, to do park, basically become a parks maintenance um, organization and provide park maintenance at Taylor Fields for all of the neighbors who use it as a as a uh, walking and dog dog walking and dog park. I mean, we picked up 360 pounds of uh, dog poo, so um, that's what we're going to be asking the the entirely entirely volunteer organization of the King uh, Kirkland American Little League to do. Uh, I just. I, I, we have to ask ourselves whether what's reasonable and um, what's a what's a real what's realistic, really. So I just wanted to add my voice to that. So I just want to make sure everyone understands it's a, not an agreement between us and the Little League; it's an agreement between King County and the right. League. Right. So I think what I'm hearing you say is, as we're talking about this, make sure it gets done, and so it has the responsibility and obligation to do it. And it does seem that that should be more on the county than on the Little League. But what we don't know is what the county is giving the Little League to do all that, right? So yeah. Uh, so we'll definitely keep that in mind as we, we talk with both parties about that. Well, I definitely am curious what the county is giving the Little League to do it because I guess I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is they're not giving them anything to do it. Um, but, um, you know, maybe the simplest solution, having been up there and picked up all the dog poo, is to have is the agreement with the county is the Kirkland American Little League has to remove the trash cans um, and re return them during the during the regular season, um, and then remove them at the end of the season because it's the presence of the bins that that's making neighbors think they can uh, throw their not not take their dog poo out with them and dispose of it at their homes. It's so that might be the simple solution to the to that problem. But 
Uh, it does not solve the problem of Taylor Fields as a future potential dog park. And I'm going to, I'm going to insert myself into this conversation, um, just because I've read the contract with the county, uh, and it is a contract between the county and KALL, and KALL is assigned responsibility. It doesn't necessarily time limit it, um, and I agree with you that would be a, a huge expectation, but they make the fields available to KALL. Um, because of that. So, I mean, it, it is, that is how they earned the right to use, to use Taylor Fields. So that's going to be an interesting discussion. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure who's going to engage on that, but yeah. Well, we'll follow up with both parties on that, but I think the main question of Snyder's Corner is still in front of you, right? Yeah, I agree. I I don't think it's appropriate for the dog park if we can if we can do the Snyder's Corner dog park. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, first, I just want to um, lend my support to what's been discussed. That I I fully support the um, fifteen thousand square feet park as the initial um, temporary park with two gates. Um, and Councilmember Curtis, your idea of a user group is kind of where I was going earlier with wanting to continue to engage. Um, all of you who have been so engaged on this, so thank you for your engagement. We hope that you'll continue to, to partner with us. I think that's a um, really awesome opportunity there. So fully support that. Um, and secondly, I think we've kind of started this conversation here, but I just want to make sure that um, with a permanent dog park that we're really, um, that's you know a more significant investment, that we're really thoughtful about the siting of that and not just assuming that it's going to be Snyder's because that's where we had the temporary dog park. Um, but um, it, you know, likely may be the place, but I just want to make sure that we're really thoughtful about um, the siting process that is really best meeting the needs of our community um, with those resources. So thank you. Thank you. Back to you, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So I'd like to make a motion. Um, first off, to uh, reopen the Snyder's dog park as soon as possible with a 15,000 square foot footprint with double gates. Um, then later, uh, look at parking situation um, as identified in option two. And then third, uh, uh, start to plan uh, for development of a master plan for the, for the facility, uh, for the, the land or the park. And then fourth, uh, create a a user group or some some type of group um, and process to harness the energy and enthusiasm of uh, the dog park users to benefit um, the interim dog park. Moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Curtis, to reopen as described. We've got that. <laughs> um, any further discussion? <laughs> All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Motion carries unanimously. <coughs> Good job, ladies. And my last item is just any calendar updates. I see none. Then that's all I have for tonight, Madam. Thank you very much. There is no additional time for the audience. <laughs> Therefore, I will declare this a wrap. Thank you, ladies. Oh, we, we do. Um, I'm going to suggest that we pass on the executive session and move on to next meeting.
okay? Because I'm not functioning 100%. Yes, we do. Yes. We And we have talked to the city manager about that right. possibility. <laughs> yeah. You think he's going to tell us to stay? I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've got most of what we need, and all we'll have to do is come to the resolution with the... I did. I said it's a wrap. Oh, <laughs> oh man. 